0: Welcome aboard the Giddy Carousel of Pop, a podcast all about the tip-top pop mag smash hits. And what we do is take an old issue, usually from the 80s, although we may slide a year or two either side of that, and have a good poke around its pages with a guest who could be a pop kid, someone who worked on the mag, and with any luck, maybe even a pop star who appeared on its pages. Still working on that one. I'm Simon Galloway, and with me, as ever, is our very own ruddy big pig, Mr (laughs) Gavin
1: Hawk. What an introduction. Thanks. I, it's all right. I'm honoured. I really am honoured. <laughs> I, Shall I just explain that for anyone that's new to uh, the giddy carousel of pop and the uh, strange world of Smash It's? Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> Astley, before he was famous, uh, wrote a song called Ruddy Big Pig, which kind of went down in Smash It's legend. And then when I rediscovered it when we were doing this podcast, I've sort of become slightly obsessed by it. So much so that Cath who was on the last episode of the podcast uh sent off for one of those t-shirts you know when you can make your own with a great big cartoon pig on it and really big pig underneath and i've taken to wearing it and tweeting rick astley i'm trying to get a re-recording you know there's bound to be a rick astley box set coming out soon it needs the unreleased version of really big pig surely there's there's got to be we've got to have that in the world <laughs> There's got to be more people who want to hear that. Anyway, yeah, so that's why I'm the really big pig. Thanks, Si. It's all right. Anytime. Um, So we've got a few uh,
0: shout-outs and mentions before we get stuck into the uh, chat today.
1: Yeah, let's do it. I uh, tweeted yesterday uh, just to say that we were going to be recording this one today, and uh, we had quite a few likes. Adrian Specks, hello to you, Adrian. Mark Taylor, how Michael, Timmy Ward, Chris McGrail, Pete Brasted, uh, Pop Rambler, and the aforementioned Kath Sked all got in touch on Twitter and liked our tweets. so hello to all of you. Thank you very much. You got any mentions on the Facebook site? Yeah,' got, got a few Facebook mentions. Can I just say Chris McGrail? Whenever I
0: talk about Chris on the podcast, that's the Chris I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> oh, that's the Chris.
0: That's the the Chris. So, hi Chris. Thanks wow. for thanks for getting in touch. Thanks for listening. Hey, up, Chris. Um, yes, uh, a few people got in touch on Facebook: um, Sarah Jane Bradshaw, Ian Duff, Jerry Casti. Jared Hopkinson, Steve Fenton, and uh, our old buddy Tim Robinson, who's our guest on the first episode of the podcast. So uh, hello to you lot. Thanks for, uh, thanks for paying attention, you know. <laughs> it's uh, very nice that, that you've done that. Um, well, we're not on our own, as ever. We do have a guest with us, and it's time to welcome them onto the carousel. Um, For the last 10 years, he's been the CEO of the Professional Publishers Association, travelling the world and banging the drum for the magazine industry. And before that, he was involved in a string of highly successful mags, including being the launch editor for Empire way back in 1989. And before even that... He was editor of Smash Hits from October 1986 to January 1989, during which time the magazine achieved its highest ever circulation figures. It's our great pleasure to welcome aboard the giddy carousel of pop, Barry McElhinney.
2: That guy sounds really good, actually. I like the sound of him.
0: (laughs) He sounds like a high-flyer. He
2: sounds like a high-flying, impressive media type. Good afternoon. Lovely to to jump aboard, scream if you want to go faster, etc., (laughs) Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> so, no, really good of you to, uh, to join us. Um, so, Barry has chosen the issue of The Hits that we'll be looking at, which takes us all the way back to the 25th of March to the 7th of April, 1987, with the missions Wayne Hussey filling up the cover in his finest goth attire. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that thanks to a couple of amazing websites Brian McCloskey's Like Punk Never Happened or Smash Hits Remembered. You'll find the links to the scans of this issue in the show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this thrill-packed edition of The Mag on our website giddypoppod.home.blog and we'll also post them on Twitter and Facebook as well just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So Barry before we get stuck into this issue mm. can you take us back to what you were doing before Smash Hits and how you ended up being there?
2: Uh, yeah I mean it so I joined Smash It's October 86 um and it still strikes me as, as very strange that three years, only three years before that, so in, in 83, I was still living in Belfast and working in the public library system. I was a, um, a library assistant. I had a career path mapped out in front of me, potentially become assistant to the librarian, then assistant librarian, then potentially librarian. Um, and I'd been there for about two or three years. Uh, And I'd been writing, you know, here and there and was the correspondent, the northern correspondent for the Hot Press, which is the sort of Irish equivalent of, say, the NME. But really was in Belfast living with my mother and destined for a career stamping books and charging people seven pence for bringing back their Catherine Cookson book six months later or whatever. Um, So, I mean, it was sort of an incredibly fast process. I left. The library and left Belfast in 83 to go to journalism college, postgraduate journalism course at City University in London, and at the same time to see if I could start writing and supplementing my meager student grant back in those glory days um, by writing for The Melody Maker, who I'd started freelancing for when I was still in Belfast. And that all worked out. So I was basically on the Melody Maker, uh, on the staff of the maker, as we call it, from, say, the start of 1985. And it was fantastic. You know, I was I was very young, single, um, footloose, fancy free, traveling the world with the Pogues. And Frankie goes to Hollywood and cares for fears and, you know, all sorts of people. I was actually quite happy there. Uh, Although, I guess, looking back, I was always sort of at the pop end of The Melody Maker. The Melody Maker was obviously a bit more like the NME, a kind of a rock, weekly, And I was more their pop correspondent, I guess, Um, but very happy there. I'd only been there about a year, 18 months. Um, And I got a phone call towards the end of 1986 from, I think, David Hepworth who would have been the sort of editorial director of EBAP, the company that published Smash Hits. Melody Maker was published by IPC, and those were the kind of two big players in the magazine scene at that time. And I was summoned to David's house, a uh, very kind of cloak and dagger, on a Sunday evening. I can still remember it, although it's 34 years ago, <laughs> believe it or not, and... Um, And then I was being summoned there for an interview, a chat. I think it was probably Bill Daz, but but really an interview for the editorship of Smash Hits, uh, which had become vacant uh, because the previous editor, Steve Bush, who was the art director when Dave was there, had left. uh, I think he'd gone to Australia to set up a magazine over there, and they were looking for a new editor. Now, to this day, I don't really know why. I approached this young, pretty inexperienced, not long out of Belfast, former librarian, currently on the Melody Maker. It's not it's not the most obvious uh fit. But I went I went to Dave's house, which I'll talk a bit about if you like, and uh, not long after was appointed editor of Smash Hits at the start of October nineteen eighty six.
0: You say you remember uh, going to Dave's house on that Sunday night. So so what happened if it was all Cloak and Dagger and stuff?
2: It was all very Cloak and Dagger. Um, and Dave had said that it would be him and a guy called Tom Maloney, who's a crucial part in all of these stories, because Tom was the essentially the managing director of that part of EMAP that published Smash Hits. Uh, and at this point, just 17, I think, as well. And it was quite church and state. I mean, there was more of a blurring of church and state than anywhere else I've ever worked, but Dave would have headed up the church, which was the creative editorial side, and Tom would have had, was heading up the state, the kind of the more business publishing side, which didn't mean that Tom Maloney didn't have very strong views uh, on editorial or that Dave you know was completely uh, naive when it came to the business, but there was there was a sort of slight separation. Uh, And he had said that Tom Maloney would therefore be there as the person, I guess, with the ultimate authority. And, of course, being at IPC at that moment, I mean, I didn't even know who the the managing director or chief executive of IPC was, but but I'm pretty sure he was about 75 years old and sort of, you know, would get a fast lift up to the 55th floor of the tower. And I got to Dave's house, and there was a very young guy sitting on a chair. And I knew Dave because, I knew of Dave because he had, been presenting the old gray whistle test and he had also, also just done Live Aid, which would have been the year before this. You know, he was the, the one of the main anchors at Live Aid. So Dave was a sort of public figure, and I knew who he was. But Dave had probably been in his late 30s at this point. I was in my early mid-20s. And um, I thought this must be well, maybe that's Dave's son, this guy sitting there. Maybe Dave had kids really <laughs> young or something, you know. Um, and this sort of youngster stood up and put his hand out and said, hello, I'm Tom Maloney. I thought, oh, wow, wow, I think I'm going to work here. This is exciting because he was younger than me <laughs> and he was the managing director. I was like 26, he was 25. It just felt like this incredibly kind of youthful, creative, vibrant pair of people. And they interviewed, I mean, it turned into quite a serious interview. And I remember going back after to the my girlfriend at the time, and saying to her, well, I've got no chance of that. I mean, that was a complete disaster. Um, And I don't know to this day, as I say, whether, you know, in the movies, if they try to get De Niro, uh, and then they can't get De Niro and they try Pacino, and if they can't get Pacino, they get Joe Pesci. I think I might have been the Joe (laughs) Pesci. I, I secretly think they maybe had a couple of others who had interviewed better and I don't know, and I've, I've always been too frightened to ask either Tom or Dave, who are very good friends to this day, I've always been too frightened to actually ask them, even now, why did you actually hire me? But I got the job when I started, and um, my first cover was Nick Kamen. Uh, I think you should always, if you're a bit of an editor of a magazine, you always remember your sort of first cover and your last cover. So I went from Nick Kamen, October 86, and my final farewell cover was Naina Cherry, and those two covers, when I mean, they bookend, you could sort of see what happened during that period. Um, you know, NME the Cherry was introducing a whole new age. So, came in, Nick in was my first cover, um, but that's not the one I've
0: chosen. We will come to that. <laughs> so, what was your awareness of Smash Hits before you actually started
2: on the mag? It um, it was regarded as a, it was regarded as a bit of a, a bit of an irritant at first. So, if you were on the Melody Maker or the NME. Splash it was very annoying because it had come from nowhere. I mean, it had, it had only launched in 78, 79. And with the whole sort of Duran Duran, Spandau, um, WAM, you know, people like that, Culture Club uh, era, it had really taken off. So it was starting, well, it, it, it had started and had become um, a real challenger, real kind of um, insurgent. And, and, and I think because it was published by EMAP, who at that point were, were, were an unknown force, um, at this point we should have the standard pop quiz question, which is, do any of our listeners know what EMAP actually stood for? E-M-A-P? Do we know? Do either of our... Co host in the Carousel I'll know the answer to this?
1: I don't know.
0: Is it East Midlands Associated Press or something like that? <sighs> so
2: close. So close. East Midlands Allied Press. Allied Press. As, as a former EMAP employee, I shouldn't that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It was it was it was colloquially known as Endless Meetings and Parties, um, which was actually closer to closer to the truth. And it was this sort of regional newspaper club. Yeah, it's about the based in Peterborough. It was based in Peterborough, yeah. published the Peterborough Evening Telegraph, the Stamford Mercury, you know, it was a solid local newspaper organisation that, that had started to move into magazines, uh, Peterborough-based at first, with things like Motorcycle News um, was was the sort of flagship title. Uh, and then Smash Hits was its first, uh, I suppose, move into the, into the glossy, it wasn't called that then, the London youth magazine market, which, as I say, would be dominated, really, I suppose by IPC and to a lesser extent by DC Thompson. So if you were working at IPC as I was uh, at Melody Maker, Smash Hits was very much the kind of the new kid on the block, which we probably didn't take as seriously as we should have, But because there was very much in the enemy at Melody Maker like we are, you know, the cool kids. You know, we're writing about the people that matter, whereas Smash Hits, you know, a writer asking people what colour their socks are, a question that actually was never asked. By anyone on Smash Hits ever. Um, so, I mean, that's that's why, as I say, I was a very unlikely choice. But it was quite a risk, I think, that must have been looking back on it, this guy from The Melody Maker. But, as I say, I suppose I was at the, I was at the poppier end. I, I, I mean, funnily enough, when I went for that interview, that fateful Sunday night, I remember I was actually on tour with Five Star for The Melody Maker, which is a strange thing for The Melody Maker to have covered. <laughs> If you remember, five star Delroy Pearson and the gang, and yeah, and I would have been the only person in Melody Maker interested in doing that. So I, I remember leaving the five star tour at Glasgow or somewhere and coming back to London, going to Dave's house, meeting the the boy like Maloney, and I realised quite early on it was a, it was a whole different ball game. I mean, not only was I the editor, whereas on Melody Maker I'd I'd been a staff writer and then the sort of reviews editor or something. But also it was a huge, it was a huge business, even though, as I say, it was was David in charge of the creative side, you you were expected to, you were expected to have a grasp of of what you were doing, not just on the page, but, but how that fitted in in terms of marketing and advertising and publishing. And I mean, I learned everything on that, you know, in those three years. And, And really, I mean, it's now 34 years later. So, you know, you can do the maths. I was 25 when I started My entire life and my entire career, really, are are entirely down to that Sunday night and getting that job at Smash Hits. And you don't realise that at the time. You never realise in life, this is your big break. You know, you just think, oh, I've got a new job, mum, you know, (laughs) sort of thing called Smash Hits. But actually, it all goes back to that fateful meeting.
1: How did your ex-colleagues on Melody Maker greet the news when you (laughs) turned up and said, oh, by the way, I'm going off to be editor at Smash"? Well,
2: yes, well, I mean, one of my mentors was Alan Jones, the legendary, larger-than-life editor of Melody Maker who published a book a few years ago called Stop Me, if you've heard this one before, which was basically a collection of all the anecdotes that I had heard before because he told me them all (laughs) in the pub. Um, and he was really good about it because Jonesy had kind of adopted me, you know, and um, he had given me that break when I moved from Belfast. Um, and I think he I think he knew that maybe my heart was more towards, you know, that popular end of things. And, and that actually I'd been at this time a melody maker, if you had in the sort of freelance period for four or five years. And, you know, I was a young man, I had ambitions, I suppose. So he was pretty good about it. And I remember... Tom Maloney saying, look, you've got, to, you've got to get out of there and get in here within two weeks, you know. I was probably on a month's notice or three months' notice, and he was very good about it. Uh, and we had a leaving do, and it was all very, you know, above board. But the minute I got to Smash It's an email, as I say, I realised that this is a whole different level of responsibility and accountability and but also uh, you know, it was a, it, it, Smash Hits was was the coming thing, and it was it was already selling. Mm. When I got there, four hundred thousand, four hundred and fifty thousand copies a fortnight. You know, <laughs> um, it's just on a scale that's hard to imagine now. And you know, I didn't know at that point, and we can talk about this. You know, there are all sorts of reasons, but we would get to a million, a million copies within those three years. You know, so. I mean, it was an absolutely golden period looking back on it at the time, like anything. It was hard work and, you know, my memories of it are late nights and, you know, staff politics and people problems and pay reviews and, Mm. you know, all the usual things. But, you know, I did also, I think, I hope, have some sense of how (laughs) bloody lucky I was to to be a part of it. And so were you eyed with any suspicion
0: then? So turning the tables a little bit, eyed with any suspicion when you turned up at the (laughs) Smatrix office? So you were still at Carnaby Street at that time, yeah? We were at 52 to 55 Carnaby Street,
2: Uh, the office very, very beautifully described by David Hepworth in his recent uh, appearance on the carousel. Um, We had I think we were on the second floor. We had just 17 above us. Um, But yes, I was viewed with um, understandable suspicion. And a kind of jokey assumption that I would just only want to listen to and talk about and feature Bruce Springsteen and U2 and the Sisters of Mercy and, you know, whoever Melody Maker at that point had been championing. And to some extent extent that was true. (laughs) Those were the people I would listen to. But, I mean, one thing about smash hits, you know, which is really interesting, is very few of the people on it who worked on it were going home and listening to the people that were in the magazine. You know, they had always had this very sort of strange setup where you were completely devoted. If you were working in Smash it, you were completely de- devoted to the readers and to what they wanted. And it, so it didn't matter really if you liked or didn't like um, the people who ha- who needed to be in the magazine, because they were the ones that the readers were buying the records of. And you, your, your sort of personal life, particularly when it came to what you listen to or what you like doing, was completely incidental and separate. So you had this very interesting variety of people working on it of all the ages and all backgrounds. And the only thing that united them was that, you know, every morning they would come to the office and think, right, what is, what is 15-year-old Karen in Crawley want to be in this magazine. And, and the fact that, you know, you, you could be Neil Tennant and in your late 20s and listening to Al Stewart, that, that didn't matter. We all had this kind of discipline, which was unshakable.
0: And who was working there at the time? Uh, I mean, was there anybody that you already knew when, when you started
2: working there? The only person I would have sort of known of would have been Dave Hepworth. And Dave's involvement was more editorial director. So at this point, Dave, he'd, he'd successfully done smash hits. They had launched Just Seventeen. They were just, they had just launched Q. So Q had just launched in 86, about a month before I got there, I think. Um, So he would have been more involved. He was starting to get more involved with that. Mark Ellen, I also knew, obviously, from television, from the Whistle Test and from Live Aid. But Mark was, by this point, editing Q, so he would have been in a different office. They were in Great Portland Street, just round the corner. So, no, I didn't really know any of the staff. Uh, and that was was a challenge in that Once, as soon as i arrived, I realised that part of the reason why they'd appointed me was because there were some problems with what was always referred to as the previous regime, like <laughs> regime change. <laughs> and I, I never quite worked out what that was because it was clear that my job was not to worry about that. It was just to make sure that there was a new regime. There were a few people who didn't. Last very long after I joined, either because they just didn't like the cut of my jib, or because you know whatever reason, and the sort of mainstays became Tom Hibbert, who became deputy editor, and who was this 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 fantastic eccentric character, <laughs> um, Chris Heath, who I think became deputy after Tom. Chris Chris was younger than me, yeah, this very sort of soft-spoken, um, incredibly clever guy who's gone on to write the definitive uh, books on the Pet Up Boys and Robbie Williams, and who I met up with last year in Brooklyn, where he now lives. And we went like a couple of old media chancers to the... Dumbo House, part of the Soho House group <laughs> in Brooklyn, and at breakfast looking over Manhattan, talking about what we're talking about right now <laughs> about smash hits in nineteen eighty seven and nineteen eighty eight, um, in a in a lovely you know moment. I hadn't seen him for years, and it's it's funny you know. There's no other magazine that I've ever worked on that that bond is still there. Where thirty years later, if, you know, if I was to meet Sylvia Patterson. On the street, you know, we'd hug and we'd chat. And so I didn't know them, but there became a sort of tight-knit crew pretty quickly, myself, Tom, Chris, Sylvia, Jackie Doyle, the art director from Dublin, Darren Schlesinger, very important figure on it, went on to make TV programmes, William Shaw. You know, I, th- I always think a, a, a sign of, of a good staff is, is also what they go on to do, you know, and, and most of those people uh, you know have gone on to have amazing careers Mike, Mike Sutar I'll talk about later you know and this was all coming out of this little room in Carnaby Street and all of us at that time with the exception of Tom probably uh, all in our m- early mid-twenties you know given absolute freedom to kind of run riot <laughs> um, <laughs> as long as as long as we didn't make too big a mess of it which, which might take us to, to the in <laughs> question <laughs>
0: Talk us through this issue and, and without giving too much away why you mm. chose this particular issue. Like I say, it's from end of March 87 with uh, Wayne Hussey from, from the Mesh on the front.
2: I guess I chose it. um Well, put it like this. When I go out wearing my PPA hat, so as you said at the intro, I've been running the PPA, which is the kind of industry body for UK magazines for 10 years now. And a large part of that is going to conferences and colleges. And I went to... This this from this seems like a long, distant golden age. Now, only a couple of months ago, <laughs> when we were still able to go out of the house, I went up to Newcastle as part of this Speakers for Schools initiative that Robert Peston set up a few years ago, where people who have careers, not just in the media, go into state schools and, and, and talk, you know, and don't get paid. In fact, we pay the whole thing, expenses. We talk to the students about our, our career and the teacher said to me, could you possibly talk about any failures that you've had in your, in your, in your career? I said, well, <laughs> there are, yes, there are no shortage of those. <laughs> um, because, you know, there's sometimes the assumption you've had this unbridled run of success, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and I used this cover uh, in front of about 200 students, uh, 14 and 15-year-olds only a couple of months ago as, as an example of how how to fail and how failure can often, you can learn as much from it, if not more than you can from a runaway success. So that's one reason I chose it because I, I talked about it recently and um, and also because I guess it illustrates some of the conflict that we've just been talking about. It's a very ex-Melody Maker front cover. And it's probably the last cover that I did that I strayed on, that I strayed too far on. Um, And if you look at the covers that come after that, they really start to hit their stride. And so this would have been me six months saying, not really entirely yet sure of what I'm doing, to be honest, and having a bit of a punt and thinking, hey, this guy worked in the Melody Maker, let's try that, and realising very quickly that we're in two different worlds here.
0: Yeah cuz when you look at I've got the um book here the best of Smash it's the 80s and you, it's got a, a gallery of all the covers in the back so so you look at the covers from that Nick Cayman and one where where you came in mm, mm. and the last one of 86 has got the House Martins on the cover <laughs> And so it's it's not really a, a massive leap or, or a surprise really to see that the mission on the cover and I was I was thirteen at the time when this came out and I was wow. certainly going out and buying mission records you know the the singles that they'd had out in eighty six and eighty seven I, I thought were fantastic so you know I, I was I would have been well pleased to have seen um, yeah. the mission in there
2: I mean I think I think so when i say failure i mean just to get into it i think (laughs) i I think so what i asked those students was can any can anybody out there say who should have been on this cover so if you look at that front cover yeah um there is a very obvious choice of somebody who actually should have been the cover um and just in case people don't have it in front of them the the answer so that is is very obviously Janet Jackson. So the choice I had to make at the time, I suppose there were three choices: were Wayne Hussey from The Mission, formerly the Sisters of Mercy, uh, Margaret Thatcher, which is a whole other um, <laughs> ball of wax, which we'll come to, um, and Janet Jackson. And the reason why it's a failure is entirely to do with 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 the so the whole the whole um, strategy behind Smash Hits was basically was driven by the top 40 so the reason why we were able to include anybody from the nolans through to bros was not because anybody thought bros were better than the nolans or, or or you know that iron maiden weren't allowed in because all those people would be in the magazine if they were in the top 40. so to some extent you were trying to align the magazine to the charts and generally, that covers the issues that sold the most. Were the people who were having the most success at that time in the top forty? Whether that be, Duran Duran a few years previously, or Rick Astley, of Roddy Gray Pig Fame, as, as you just <laughs> talked about. So, that's the other reason why there was no there is no individual bias. It didn't matter. You know, I quite like Van Morrison. Van Morrison w- was was not in Smash Hits, not because of. What he sounded like or what he looked like but because during this period he probably never had a hit if he'd had a hit he would have been in it so the reason why this fails is because the chart used to come out. they used to announce the chart i think on a tuesday morning uh mike smith or whoever it would have been at the time would do the rundown and my decision to put wayne hussey in the cover would have been all about an, a, a, a bet a bet if you like, that the mission would be higher in the chart than Janet Jackson. And I can still remember I had a company car at the time. This was one of the few um, measures of success of, of that you'd made it was well, you had a company car. I had a Ford Sierra, formerly belonging to the ad director, and I was driving into the West End. And Mike Smith's doing the countdown. And already, the magazine's gone to bed. You know, it's at the printers. It's about to come out. And he's counting down the top 40, and the mission have gone in at, I don't know, number 32 or something, and I'm just, I mean, that's bad enough, but I'm now just thinking, we've just got to hope that Chad Jackson hasn't gone in in the chart, because (laughs) he's got the 20, and he hasn't mentioned it yet, 19, and at 18, 17, it's a bit like pointless, you know, I thought, please God, you know. (laughs) And of course, in it number four is Janet Jackson, you know, and, and just the scale of them of the mistake becomes apparent. I had to pull the car over to the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> Silent, <laughs> silently sobbing practically. <laughs> because I'm still on probation from a purely selfish point of view. I'm probably still on a six-month probation period. And the magazine's doing okay at this point, but you know, it hasn't taken off. It's probably selling what it was selling the day I walked in, 400, 450. Uh, And this is just a very obvious mistake because not only is he a gamble because it's Wayne Hossie, but but clearly nobody's really buying the record. And you've managed to get, hang on a minute, you've got a world exclusive with Janet Jackson with some fantastic pictures of her blowing bubble gum. And and P.S., you may not know this, you oaf having been in The Melody Maker. She's Michael Jackson's sister. Did you know that? <laughs> and we haven't been able to speak to Michael Jackson in five years since Mark Ellen interviewed him on the phone one night. So this is, you know, even if nothing else, she is the way into Michael Jackson, who's the single biggest pop star of the moment. And you've put this guy from somebody called The Mission in a pair of dark glasses on the cover. What are you thinking of? So I had that conversation with, with Maloney, really, to some extent with Hepworth. And I suppose what I took away from it was just this real, you know, this is serious business here. You know, there's a lot, not only is there your credibility at stake, but if you're selling selling 500,000 magazines at, at 48 pay a go and you're having advertisers beat down the door to get into it, there's a lot of money at stake as well. And if you were to suddenly start selling 300 or 200, you know mm-hmm. that's not going to play very well, and there will be you- a new editor of Smash Hits. Yeah, you know. um, so you know it was my first editorship. I, I was relatively inexperienced, and I'd sort of made a not a not a kind of career-ending blunder, but it would not have been beyond the realms of possibility for them to say, Do you know what, you're not quite right for this. If you can't work out that Janet Jackson, is more Smash Hits than this. Fool in a hat and glasses, then off you go. Thankfully, they didn't do that.
1: <laughs> do you remember what the sales figures were for this magazine? Did it take a noticeable dip? Do you remember?
2: I don't remember, but I, I'm pretty sure it didn't go up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's put it, put yeah. Like I think that. we can probably agree. <laughs> I think the saving grace might have been that we we got Thatcher. You know, which which sort of still. I'm just looking at it here. I've got the issue on my iPad. Um, you know, just the, the whole Thatcher thing. I mean, nowadays it's quite common. You know, you have these ridiculous things where Gordon Brown pretends that he likes the Arctic Monkeys and David Cameron's into the Smiths, and you know, mm. you've got somebody you know you've got a machine inside inside Downing Street pumping this stuff out. This would have been the first time ever that a that a prime minister i had spoken to anybody like Smash Hits. I mean, the idea, who was before Thatcher, Jim Callaghan or Harold Wilson, you know, just
3: yeah.
2: seems preposterous. And, and I, I think what was happening here was, was A, a beginning of a realisation that there was such a thing as youth culture and that it mattered, and that all of these people would be coming to vote at some point, if not in the forthcoming election, then in the next one. Um, that Smash Hits was hugely... Influential, you know. At this point, if you're selling four hundred thousand, you're being read by you know one and a half two million because people are passing it around so much in the in the playground or whatever. And that this was an important audience. You've also got the beginning, I guess, of of some kind of spin doctoring where somebody within within the organisation within mm. government realizes, yeah, this would actually be quite a good idea. And I remember we, you know. We, we wrote. I wrote to the press secretary at Downing Street, you know, dear Mr. Whoever, uh, and got a letter back, you know, because it was before email or whatever, saying the prime minister would be delighted. And we couldn't quite believe it. And, of course, we had to think who to send, you know. <laughs> and, and sort of, obviously, we sent, obviously we sent Hibbert. We sent Hibbs as the most eccentric, you know, strange representative you could think of in his what he would have referred to as as Mr. Byright's suit. And there's there's a picture of him, you know, sitting with Thatcher. Thatcher obviously trying to work out what this strange creature is. Um, And her talking about, you know, her favourite song being how much is that doggy in the window. I mean, it's so far away from the controlled uh, Blair era. Um, And one of Tom's great obsessions was that Cliff Richard should be knighted. Um and he sort of had this campaign for, you know, and we would call him Sir Cliff Richard, you know, Sir Cliff, yeah. Cliff Richard. And of course he a- he asks her, you know. <laughs> and she's like, you know, no splendid, you know. So <laughs> you can just it's a classic Smash Hits feature and you can you can see the two levels that we always tried to work on. One, here's a guy interviewing the Prime Minister, and two, kind of almost at the same time, this is absurd, the whole thing, you know. That this is this 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 very strange creative individual interviewing this this woman who probably doesn't really know what she's doing, you know, doesn't really know, what she's and has no spin and no interest, <laughs> but has been told to do it. <laughs> um, and I think that might have been the saving grace. in that There was certainly an amount, of, a certain amount of creativity and ingenuity involved, and innovation or whatever, in in getting it and landing it, um, that maybe got me off the hook when it came to choosing. Wayne Hussey over. I still can't bring myself to set over Janet Jackson.
0: <laughs> I was just checking the uh, the chart stats actually, and uh, yeah, the singles that were out at the, the time this magazine was out. Uh, the Mission got to number 25 with Severina oh. and uh, Janet Jackson, all the way to number three with um, Let's Wait a While.
2: <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Um, but I think people what? don't realize how, how much the charts were. The driver behind it, you know, and it made life easy in a way because it was like, should Philip gofield should he be in smash it? Well, has he got a single out? Yeah, okay. If he doesn't, no. It, and it made, it made it very democratic, you know. So that's why, as I say, you two are in there and, you know, some sort of hoary old rock stars are in there and, and because they've got a single out and their kids are flocking to buy it. And sort of, who are we to say that they shouldn't be in there? And it made it, it made it very democratic and, and almost very easy to work out the hierarchy of who's in there and how much coverage you give them.
0: Well, should we look at the the, the rest of the cover here? Mm. So, so this uh, would have cost you forty five pence or uh, three Deutschmarks in Germany or Singapore. What's that? Three Singaporean dollars. So as well as the mission, the uh, quote here, I've got lovely legs and I'm perfect from uh, Wayne Hussey. <laughs> We're struggling here,
2: let's be honest.
0: <laughs> the aforementioned Janet Jackson, has uh, to Kill the Cat, Genesis, Mel and Kim, David Bowie and Lone Justice.
2: There's a perfect example, isn't there, of that breadth of church I was talking about? Yeah. Do you think of it?
0: Um, posters of the Jets, Boy George, Nick Cayman, and Madonna. Um, five more brilliant free stickers. My stickers are long gone. I can't remember which ones I got. My memory's not that good. And uh, when we flick over to the contents page, um, there's a, uh, oh, a lovely, lovely shot of David Bowie, which would have pleased Ooh. me greatly at the time. And along with the features that were just mentioned, song words for Genesis, Prince, Dead or Alive, The Pretenders, Cindy Lauper, Madonna, Lone Justice, Mel and Kim, Blow Monkeys, Bruce Willis, oof, you 2 Curious to kill the cat, the mission. Hey, and uh, Al (laughs) Jarreau. I
2: mean, what, what, what an eclectic bunch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so shall we have a look at bits then, um, hmm. Gav? Is there anything there that, that
1: leaps out to you on the first couple of pages of bits? Oh, you, you've startled me there, Simon. We've just glossed over David Bowie. That's not like you. Should,
0: well, should, shall we? Shall we skip back to Dave? Well, he, he was—he had a, a proper feature a few months later in Smash. It so that I remember very well.
2: Bowie is very interesting because Bowie is a classic case. You see, of somebody who, his record company and management would have, I'm sure, impressed upon him. The importance of Smash Hits from a a circulation point of view. You know, it's selling a lot of copies, David, (laughs) the kids. um, I suspect Bowie himself, maybe at that point, would have been more interested in the face of the enemy and the other magazines. And of course, our attitude to David Bowie, which takes us back to setting aside one's own personal taste, would have been he probably would have been the person in the office that everyone loved but we would insist that we do him on our terms. And therefore there would always be this tension between Bowie and his people on the magazine, because they would be like, hey, we can get David Bowie. And we'd be like, well, that's great, but can we get him, you know, bursting out of a birthday cake? And they'd say, well, don't be ridiculous. It's David Bowie, you know. And we'd say, yeah, but that's, that's not enough. And that came to a head a few months later <clears throat> in that feature you mentioned where because he was, <laughs> because he was always talking about how he was chamele- chameleon-like. <laughs> we illustrated the entire thing with chameleons just sort of crawling all over the pages, <laughs> 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 and his people went went ballistic, as you can imagine, <laughs> when the thing came out and run me and said, "You know, this is David Bowie. You know, he's a, a major artist. You've got these chameleons on." I was like, "Well, that that's what we do, you know." Um, so. This is probably, he's probably in bits as a kind of negotiated, let's get him in at this point and we might do a feature later on if we can get him, you know, to, as I say, be bursting out, playing a trombone out of a cake or something, that's never happened.
0: I seem to remember that the feature, he was on the set of the Pepsi commercial that he was filming with Tina Turner where she's a robot that comes to life and he's some sort of mad scientist and I th- I think the um the the interview was done in a break in, in filming for that. I seem to remember, I haven't mm. read it for a long time, but that when it's David Bowie, it is burned in my memory. <laughs> but this particular thing that's just kind of, yeah, it's just a, a little feature and a, and a rather nice photo of Dave on the uh, set of the uh, Never Let Me Down album cover shoot. But it's because he's got a new single out, he's got a new album coming out, and he's got a, a big old tour coming up, the Glass Spider Tour, which everyone I'm sure roll their eyes at when I mention that. <laughs> but I think I, I, I may be wrong, but I I think that's possibly the only time that the interview and feature with Bowie with was the only time that he was interviewed for the Mac.
2: Well, I think he was going through a strange period. Certainly in my time, so 86 to 89, would have been Glass, Spider... Um, and just before Tin Machine. <laughs> just be- just before. I mean, looking back, I can't believe how hardcore we were, but, you know, the, the, you would get a phone call say, I don't know, you know, the Rolling Stones are... Are prepared to do it, and we would still say, "Well, yeah, that's not quite enough." You know, we need them to do something,
3: (laughs) Um,
2: and we and we don't want to talk to Bill Wyman or whatever. You know, you would get to this the the magazine. The magazine would get to a point of it got to a point of such strength and commercial importance. You know, when you're selling three quarters of a million copies uh, every fortnight, you know, if, if you're if you're the record company. Uh, on the management, you're very keen to have your act in there, but you would have this tussle between the people who were still very keen to be in there, the artists included, because they needed it, and those who probably felt, oh, I don't really need that anymore. You know, I'm Paul McCartney, I'm David Bowie, I'm I'm whoever, and and that's where the tensions would arise because they would feel that you know they, them coming into our world somehow maybe fantasized him or something. So Bowie, it would have been a mix of his career at a strange period and probably just not prepared, understandably so, to fool around the way that Smash Hits demanded he do.
0: So uh, moving on from uh, Dame Dave, bits proper. Gav, anything leaping out to you on those uh, first couple of pages?
1: I mean, there's, there's quite a few bits and bobs in here. Obviously, Nick Cayman makes another appearance with some... Uh previous photos he's had done for, you know, catalogs and, and the like. Freeman's catalogs, these are all from. But I think my favourite little thing, is just a very typical smash-its thing that really made me laugh, is a couple of pictures uh, into bits. That picture of Morton Harkett, which is great. It's uh, Nature in Pictures, a bits natural history special. It says, spring approaches fast. The buds on the trees are getting ready to burst. The sun's soft caresses warm the land. The air is full of the song of birds. Soon it will be the nesting season. Here is a picture of Morton Harkett nesting. <laughs> it's just a great picture of Morton in a tree. And uh, yeah, it's very typical kind of smash-its thing. I love that.
2: It's also, what I, it, it, what I love it, looking back on it, is the level of detail. So you have a birthdays list and you have Agnetha Falkstag. Uh, and it says, mm, and brackets, says, mm, she's so dreamy of ABBA 37. It's just, rather than just putting Fox talk of ABBA, it's the time that somebody has taken to make the little gag, um, which most people won't notice. And that was very much what we did, and particularly in Bits. I mean, Bits was this sort of youth club part of the magazine over in the corner that William Shaw, Sylvia Patterson, Lola Borg, you know, various people ran pretty much as a kind of independent republic. Um, And that you could just trust them to do things like that, you know, to just to make sure that it was sort of what would now be called on brand, you would obviously have been shot if (laughs) you'd used those words, rightly so back then.
0: Well, I, I always call it the, the beating heart of Smash Itz, cause its because yeah. it's, it really is kind of almost like shorthand for everything that, that Smash It's does and a big part of its character and, and kind of sets it up and always runs right through. Well, it's, the, it's the vein that runs through the history of the mag.
2: It has the crap joke corner. What yeah. do you call a pop star who steals hats? Nick Berry. It's terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's quite a lot of work. I mean, even now, God, I mean, you can see... Not only is there a huge amount of little bits bits, hence the name of, of copy, all of which has to be unbranded and done properly, but you've also, Jackie Doyle, who is the up-and-coming art director at this point, is doing all these hand designs, so really you've got like denim, actual denim running through every page here, sort of. Handcrafted.
0: Yeah, that, that's something we've noticed, that the theme of the surrounds on the pages of bits always changes. So we were yeah. looking at one that was from around Easter time and it was all chocolate and chocolate eggs and things like that.
2: And she was fantastic at that. I mean, she would she would just spend hours hiring <laughs> her design team. Um, and the magazine, I think at this point, did start to develop a real visual identity. Maybe not quite just yet, but because Jackie would have been you know, at this point, art director, roughly the same time that I've been editor. But really, I suppose, like all of us, because we were relatively new-ish, start, had started to hit our stride some point in 87 uh, and then sort of had this amazing year in 88 where we were just selling so many copies and also we're very lucky because people liked... Rick Astley and Bross and Jason and Kylie started to emerge.
0: I like uh, Terence Trent Darby. He seems quite game.
2: He was for a while.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, until, <laughs> until the second album. I guess this would have been his first appearance in the mag. It was certainly at the early stages of his career.
2: We also so we used bits as well for two reasons. I suppose one was here are people that we're not sure about, but the record company have said this guy's going to be big and, you know, his single's going to chart midweek it. Thirty six or something, and you'd have a look at him, and he looked right, and he, you know, and at this point he's prepared to do whatever you want him to do. So it would be used as a, as a as a sort of breeding ground for potential bigger stars, and also you would use it as a potential training ground for the journalists. So um, you would get somebody in, and you'd think, you know, these people look like they might be the type of people who could be in Smash Hits. Let's try them out on bits, um, because there would always be somebody. William or whoever sort of experienced enough to to keep an eye on it. So it was this fascinating sort of fertile breeding ground for pop stars and journalists alike.
0: We've well, got some, uh, well, a, a very good smash it question. Uh, he must have been asked this question. He's never grown parsnips in a gumboot.
2: That's very Sylvia. <laughs> That's probably Sylvia Patterson. Sylvia, Sylvia was, had just started when I got there and, and was 21, 22, and, and had this strange pop sense, <laughs> sort of, I don't know, sensibility, where she would ask people things like that, you know, what colour is Tuesday? Do, do eggs make a queer whistling noise when you fry them? <laughs> which which is fine when you're asking the up-and-coming Terence Darby, when you're asking, I don't know, Brian May, the Queen, <laughs> 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 there was a tendency to say, you know, hang on a minute, you know. Um it was never as I say what colour are your socks it always had a little bit more wit to it uh, you know parsnips eggs colours
1: does your mother play golf
2: does your mother play golf because of course I think as as, as Hepworth was saying you were always trying to get them to look out you know because you never really wanted them to talk about the album you know how they got the bass sound on the new single uh, you were always trying to Position the pop star in the wider world, and you always had this sort of rocking vicar <laughs> kind of Ken Dodd. Oh, Mrs. Sensibility, you know. Oh, look at this pop star; he's a funny creature. There was always that going on, and I think, as I said earlier, I think it worked at its best on two different levels. There would be here's an interview with Bananarama you know, and you would just you'd find out fascinating things about Bananarama and for the hardcore audience, which at that time were largely 13 to 16-year-old girls, you would get that, but there were a lot of boys starting to read the magazine and there were older people starting to read the magazine. And you would you would always have to sort of make sure that there was enough in there for them as well mm. who would really appreciate Terence Trent Darby being asked if he'd ever grown parsnips in a gumboot because <laughs> it's just funny, you know, and you're not going to read it anywhere else. So... That kind of slightly schizophrenic, you know, dichotomy of yes, here's here's one for the eleven year old just coming into it, but here's one for the nineteen year old who's been reading it now for three or four years and trying to keep that church broad and sell a million copies was, I think, when it was at its best.
0: So we get to our first feature in the mag, and it's two pages on how to make a pop video starring Curiosity Killed the Cat.
1: Uh, Gav, do you want to take us through this one? They seem to kind of have everyone that's working on the video, they know, don't they? (laughs) They're either family or friends. They're doing a video shoot for the new Single Ordinary Day. And uh, I think, is it? Who's doing the piece? Is it Lola Borg's? Doing it's Lola
2: Borg, which of course I yeah. must jump in here and say this is special, because I Lola Borg is my is now my wife <laughs> and has been for the last 29 years. So be so. careful what you say. <laughs> so be <laughs> <Right>. careful <laughs> before okay. you go any further. Yeah, I think um,
1: this is this is why I chose this piece, because it's so well
2: written. <laughs> <laughs> she um I just speaking to her this morning and I said, I'm doing this thing today, and your curiosity killed the cat pieces of it. And she said, Oh my god, I remember going to Ben. Volpierre's pierre's mother's house and talking to her at the time and
1: okay
2: i mean it's amazing because as i said earlier i mean my entire career is depends upon smash it but actually i also met um lola who worked at the time mainly on bits and just 17 and we got married in 1991 uh and have two grown-up children together so to, you know it's not uncommon. It was like a family, literally like a family. <laughs> um, you know, Chris Heath was an usher at our wedding, and you know, etcetera, etcetera. And yeah, it was pretty, uh-huh. it was pretty amazing. Well, I saw, I couldn't believe it. Words, Lola Barksy, so, uh, <laughs> the, the missus, as
3: they say.
1: Well, it's very well written. I really thank is. you. She's <laughs> telling there's a bit. So the bit that made me uh, chuckle is uh, she's talking about the behind the scenes at the video shoot, and she says, Even more bizarre is that everyone here appears to be a very close personal friend of the group, or if not, then at least a relation. <laughs> Ben's brother Dominic is a group's, inverted commas, a hairdresser. He informs me snootily. Miege's, Miege's, uh, girlfriend, yeah. uh, girlfriend's mother, looking very trendy in black and white first shoes, has styled, in inverted commas, the set. The producer Siobhan is... In inverted commas, an old friend, as is the director. The clothes are styled by Miggy and Ben's ex-landlady. Even Miggy's dad, Andrew Drummond, an art director, has been roped in to design the sets. The set today is four very stylish white rooms intended, like the video, to appear ordinary yet extraordinary, according to Ben, which Miggy's dad describes as a labour a, a labor of love. How come? I'm not getting paid for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it feels like very it. much a kind of uh, bit of a shoestring operation. And, you know, and they were on a major label and they had a couple of hits by this point, hadn't they, I think?
2: They were, they were really interesting because they were one of the first, they were kind of a new wave that came around that time. Um, I remember that cover, fantastic cover of Ben in the denim jacket wearing all the badges that Smash It's pretty much made for him. And it felt, I remember doing that issue and feeling like a real shift away from from where we were. They didn't last very long. I mean, there was Curiosity, there was Johnny Gates Jazz, Brother Beyond, Climby yeah, Fisher. Climey Fisher. I yeah. mean, all these groups, you know, who, who they, I suppose they, that was that was another factor at that time. You would have six months, maybe a year. And that was it. <clears throat> Neil Tennant, as I'm sure you know, had this, has this theory that all pop groups have an imperial period and it lasts for three years uh, at its best, you know, and those three years, you can do nothing wrong. You, you have hit after hit, but it never lasts longer. And of course people will always say, well, what about the Beatles? And the answer to that is they had two, they had two imperial periods. They had the mop tops mm. and then they had the psychedelic, you know, 63 to 67, 67 to 70. Um, Oasis. Yeah, I know they lasted, but really three years of absolute domination. And I think in the Smash Hits world, it was even shorter. You know, you might get two years if you were Bross or Rick Astley, and clearly you would have some people like Madonna who would transcend the decades. But even she probably had that three-year of absolute pomp, and Smash Hits' job was to ride that with them uh, and get right into the middle. Curiosity probably only had nine months.
0: I was going to say it's a matter of months for a uh, curiosity my favourite bit was uh, Nick from Curiosity Killed the Cat who, I, I looked it up he was the bass player I wanted to know what his role was in the band so he was the bass player um, he's worrying that because he's wearing an anorak he looks like a house martin and he's desperately asking for an opinion <laughs> looking for insurance
1: <laughs> He will look like a house Martin. <laughs>
0: God forbid it should look like somebody from the House martins. <laughs> um, but we'll leave um, curiosity there, and yep. um, we'll just look briefly at RSVP, which was the, the the pen pals page. And whenever we get to this, we're always staggered that um, you always get um, people's full names and addresses printed in the mag. And normally you get um, people from around the world. There's somebody from Saudi Arabia on this one, uh, but other than that, it's largely UK based and gav you've been playing detective
1: i have yeah this is a, a new giddy carousel of pop first uh actually got in touch with someone who advertised in this rsvp for pen pals because as i was looking through it i found a name of someone that looked quite an unusual name and i thought i'll just have a quick look on facebook see if i can find this person straight away found them and they were easy to identify because of the town was the same as uh, the town that's uh, mentioned here But it's someone that was really uh, a guy called Mark who was completely mad on the human league and basically wanted to write to anyone that was a fan of Phil and his mob. And uh, so I just sent him a quick message on Facebook and I just said, I'm I'm presuming this is you. uh, And I just wondered if you got many pen pals through the magazine and if you're happy to share any memories. So, um, yeah, he wrote back straight away. uh, Very nice chap. He said, I was inundated with letters every day. He said, I put this small ad in the magazine asking for other fans to contact me. I had a dozen or so pen pals from it. I was sent tapes of live concerts and rare tracks. It was amazing. Best of all, someone gave me Ian Burden's telephone number. I spoke to him a few times. Really nice guy. I said he was a legend. He said he wasn't. The bin <laughs> men were more important than him. <laughs> so there we go. So, so through that, he got in touch with uh, you know uh, your actual member of, of the Human League. And
2: uh, yeah, I loved RSVP because I think you, know, you you heard this from 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 Dave Hepworth, but it was it was an astonishing thing, you know, that no longer would exist because it's it's all about pen pals and you have to write, you have to then you know go get an envelope, put a stamp on it, go to the post office, post it, wait for it to come in. But the mail bag that we used to get was just sacks of mail. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Just you know, postie would come along, hard to be Street sort of weighed down, you know, with these bags. <laughs> and there's a lovely innocence to it, I think, you know, when you look at it now, both both in how they write, but also just of those times, you know. And um, you had to be careful even then to try to weed out people who were using it for their own purposes. But, you know, the vast yeah. majority of it is as innocent as it appears, you know. Uh, and it's, it's just a very sweet, the sweetness to it, sitting in your bedroom. You know, 13, 14, loving Madonna, the human league, or and wanting people who also like that to write to you. And it just feels like a very kind of lovely, long-gone age.
1: It does. It feels like ancient history now, doesn't it, mm. looking back at this?
2: Mm. It's incredible. It is. It, hi. Calling all mambas willing sinners and gutter hearts. We're two females desperate for someone to write to If you worship Mark Almond, and like T-Rex, the mission sex gang children Bauhaus etc etc I mean it's uh, I remember it being more the sort of pure brass but that's actually quite broad and quite kind of enemy territory. you've got simple minds, the pogues, the cult. Jean loves Jezebel. Um, but I love that just conjuring up that image of those sort of lonely teenagers sitting in bedrooms all over Britain you know sending this letter off and, and kind of implies assurance that somebody would write back and they did.
0: let's um, take a look at the Margaret Thatcher interview, shall we? Wow. I? Come with us, why don't you, inside the hallowed portals <laughs> of Number 10 Downing Street where the so-called Iron Lady awaits your pleasure. And straight away, what I liked about the, just the design of this one yeah. is that the main headline, the Margaret Thatcher interview, is done in that Jamie Reed Sex Pistols, Poison Pen letter style That's true. of, of cut-out letters from newspapers, which I thought, quite a subversive way... To put this feature in there.
2: It's incredible. He he I mean, this Thomas straight in with it, as you say. And he goes, I present the Prime Minister with the token of your affection, a black tight tea towel, <laughs> which he actually did, which he appears to mistake for a fairy liquid advertisement. Have you seen that in a net newman fairy liquid advertisement in television? She asks. Lovely, lovely. And it's just it's, like, it's a very surreal piece. Um, and Tom knows he, Tom knows exactly what he's doing
0: here. Yeah, well, he, he almost calls her out straight away in what he says in the intro. Yeah. And then we embark on the interview itself, which she displays an eagerness to please, combined with a skill in evasion, riding rush on over interjections that mark her out as the professional she is. Margaret Thatcher is a serious politician and she wants your vote. And that evasion absolutely runs through it.
2: And the the Polaroid quotes, which we always put time on. I'm so sad that Elton John is having this difficulty dash with his throat so it sounds quite like as opposed to that other difficulty that we don't want to talk about and also the
0: uh, photos of stars from bygone eras Arthur Askey (laughs) who's that there the the tornadoes, lovely
2: Adam Faith always melodious that's the the caption that's her quote the the Beatles tuneful songs
0: (laughs) <laughs> but I thought what it's was, What was a good uh, example of the evasion is um on the first page in the last column how do you react to today's left wing pop hacks the house martins the style council Billy Bragg who can't wait to get you out of number 10 so he's just Tom's straight in there not pulling any punches and so can't they ha 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 well I remember when I went down to Limehouse Studios and immediately she just turns it around into to something yeah. else
2: and there's then there's, there's, he just goes straight to it when are you going tonight Cliff Richard yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's no build up Cliff Richard has done wonders it was he, and she just sort of talks nonsense, really. I remember him coming back and just the whole office, you know, for one sort of stopping thing, how'd it go? You know, what was she like? Because it was such a, it was such a moment and Hibbs would just give that sort of grin and say nothing and <laughs> <laughs> light up a cigarette and start typing, you know, and, and three hours later you had it. It was amazing.
1: What was uh, Tom like to manage, Barry? <laughs>
2: Well, um, I mean, Tom, Tom had been brought into the magazine, I think, with Mark, Ellen. He was a close friend of Mark's. He was older, but he seemed older. I mean, I, I think he was older, but he certainly seemed older. And he was... You didn't really manage him is the honest answer to that. You sort of let him be um, because he kept peculiar hours. I mean, my, my abiding memory is him sitting, smoke, chain-smoking... Bashing away on the old typewriter. And just he had he he lived in his own world, you know. And very much that world that comes into Smash Hits with the strange expressions and phrases. And he would always do the coming up next week page, which was the most surreal page in the magazine. And you (laughs) you sort of let it let him go go with that because (laughs) you know it wasn't that important. But no, he was an extraordinary character. Um And, you know, sadly died some years ago and, you know, we were all at the funeral, which unfortunately has become, you know, as one gets older, you start doing this, you go to the funerals of people you used to work with. But I think everyone who was on it would have said he was the, the kind of guiding spirit of Smash Hits for for that entire period, really. Mm. Um, And I just, I've never actually managed or worked with anyone quite like him. You know, and I mean that kind of, Good and bad way, but 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 overwhelmingly good.
1: Yeah, it feels like a real one-off. Uh, you know, a complete sort of maverick, and uh, but just such an energy and a spirit to him. And you know, really, it feels when you when you read the like smash hits from around this period, a large part of his personality stamps onto the magazine in terms of the vocabulary and the humour, and just that. What you were saying before about that kind of sense of of fun with it, as kind of taking it seriously, but taking the piss as well at the same time.
2: Yeah, he brought a lot of that, and he was incredibly kind of kind to me because, you know, I, I mean, he would have had no ambition to be editor, you know, uh, but he was technically the most senior person. He'd been on it the longest, and he was the oldest, and I mean, I'm sure that he more than anyone would have thought, who is this guy, you know, <laughs> when I arrived? But actually, we did strike up something of a bond, and... um Maybe because I just, I suppose, let him be. And I think the worst thing to do with Tom would have been to have said, okay, you know, we start at 9.30 and uh, you've got one hour for lunch. And, you know, (laughs) Tom would drift off to a a nearby hostelry quite often, you know. And I just took the attitude of the stuff he's producing is sensationally good. I don't really care how he does that. Yeah. Um, And for a period at least. Yeah. We just let give him his head, and it was fantastic. And yeah. of course, he took all of that onto Q. So he started the Who the Hell column on Q. So every month on Q, they would do Who the Hell does whoever think he is, uh, and that was Tom. I mean, for the first, I don't know, the first sixty or seventy Qs, probably it was all Tom, and it was exactly that type of writing, and that it, 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 it became a little bit less. Comic book, you know, because mm. it was it was Q was a monthly and it was kind of slightly older and more grown up, but it had that same worldview of you know this is a funny old world and who's this strange character and oh look you know we appear to have John Bon Jovi with us today, listeners, and it just it just it worked even better I think than Q. We missed him on Smash Hits obviously, but a lot of people you know by this time a lot of people who'd been in Smash Hits, Mark, Tom were moving across the queue, uh, which then went through the purple patch of its own in the mm. probably the late 80s, early 90s.
1: And another thing from this Margaret Thatcher piece, and Barry touched on it earlier, was that sort of lack of awareness, really, on Margaret Thatcher's part about popular culture. And obviously someone had said to her, this is important, you know, you should really have an interview with this magazine. But, for example, when they're talking about Live Aid, She doesn't actually mention any of the bands that have played. Tom asks her, How did you feel about Live Aid? She says, I thought it was marvelous. I watched some of it on the Wembley thing and it was absolutely terrific. It was the first time we'd been able to get a great body of young people, not merely interested in something, but actually doing something for it and loving doing it. And I thought it was absolutely terrific. And I watched some of that and one group after another came and they did a marvelous job. And you're like, She doesn't know anyone that was on it at all. You know, she doesn't even like mention, you know, you two or. you know, any of the sort of the big names that are on it. Um, I wonder whether she saw any of it at all. But it, she's obviously not been sort of prepped for it, has she, in that way? And and all the cultural references are, are very old.
2: And Hibbs asked her this, you know, quite telling question. What would you say are the worst problems facing young people today, AIDS, unemployment? And her answer is, you always wonder what's going to happen to you in the future. I can remember as a teenager, some young marrieds I knew. They knew who <laughs> they'd married. They knew what their training was going to be. It's a tremendous uncertainty in both the problem it's just it's just sort of gibberish and um <laughs> you do you do as I say just by leaving it. He never says at any point, hang on a minute, you know, you clearly don't know what I'm talking about, by just saying and that's very smash it's by saying, Here we are, come with us, listeners, into the hallowed Portals of number ten. You're here we're gonna meet this woman called Margaret Thatcher and off you go. And you just let her to some extent, hoist herself by her own petard uh, without ever commenting and saying, she's clearly a bit nuts in here, you know, and um, is only doing this because some youngster in the department has told her to. We'd never say that. Uh, And some people will read it or would have read it at the time and thought, that's interesting, it's the prime minister. And and a lot of people would have read it and thought, wow, that's telling in its own way.
0: Uh, She's completely of a different world. and She she just doesn't... (laughs) have any way of making that connection to the Smash It's audience in, in any way whatsoever. Yeah. Full of evasion and things like that when when he asks about the, the milk snatcher thing. yeah, <laughs> And then she just turns it all into people going out and doing things for themselves and getting a job and whatever else. She just falls back on the things that are in her world and just can't bridge that gap. But I was interested to know, mm-hmm. did you have to send this piece back to the the press office at number 10 for it to be checked?
2: No. I mean, the whole thing, looking back on it, was so kind of loose. You know, as I say, I wrote to the press officer. I would have got that name from somebody. And he wrote back on a sort of formal head of paper saying the Prime Minister would be delighted to, to grant an interview with Smash H Magazine, you know. And that was as far as it went. We... I presume I must have rung at some point and said it's going to be Tom Hibbert and Paul Ryder doing the pics. Paul is another great old friend and kind of the pretty much the staff photographer in those days. And my memory I mean, it's a long time ago. But my memory is they came back, Tom wrote it up, Paul did the pictures, we ran the piece, never heard from them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's so uncontrolled and unlike, I mean, I know enough. From still being in the game to some extent, to you know how that doesn't happen now. Yeah, uh, you know you couldn't get an interview with it with anybody with an MP without going through various hoops. Never mind the prime minister, where you just sent, sent the photographer and the writer, they wrote it up, and we printed it. End of.
1: <laughs> Do you remember what the reaction was uh, in the following weeks from the readers? And
2: Funnily enough, I don't. I don't remember it being that big a deal. I mean it. I think it's one of those things, it's clear now that it was a moment, you know, that that it's the first time ever that a prime minister had done this. Um, But no, I mean, I think it probably, it maybe didn't land as well, you know, as much for the audience as much as it does for us now, because Mm. we're older and we're more savvy and we look back and think, wow, that's weird, you know, that whole sort of lack of control (laughs) and just the tone of the piece is so um, odd. But I think at the time, you know, people are more interested in Janet than Curiosity killed the Cat is the truth of it.
0: But it is one of those pieces that, that Smash It's is remembered for. Yeah. It's one of those key things.
2: And I was so glad I did it, you know. I was so glad that we 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 took that gamble, because it wasn't the easiest thing to to put together or well, I mean it wasn't hard logistically, but it wasn't the easiest thing to convince people that we should be doing, because nobody had ever done it before. Uh and I think maybe, maybe I'm probably blowing my own trumpet here, but I think because I had come from a newspaper background, I'd, I'd worked in newspapers after the library and before Melody Maker and maybe working in Melody Maker as well, I think maybe it's something I brought to it was, look, we could we could actually get the Prime Minister in here. And as I say, I was still... Adapting to Smash Head, so maybe this was one of the few advantages coming from that slightly more not political but sort of uh, slightly less poppy background gave. Uh, I don't know, but it probably at the time was regarded along with Wayne Hussey as, as as not a mistake, but. Indicative of not quite knowing your audience, but here we are 33 years later talking about it.
1: You were right all the way along, Barry. <laughs> Thank
2: you. I'm sorry, do you know what? That was just a lengthy way of saying I was right. <laughs> I told you. History has proved me right. Yeah, I told you so. <laughs>
0: Vicky McDonald's gone to Holland with the mission. (laughs) And it sounds like they're having a thoroughly miserable time. It sounds like they're having to stay drunk to get through the experience, and uh, there's not a lot of bright and pop happening things going on
2: in this piece. I like, the, I, like the, I like the intro. No wonder Van Gogh, brackets, mad Dutch painter who cut his ear off, close brackets, went bonkers. It's very Smash Hits, isn't it? Because it's telling you something. It's telling a 13-year-old, there's a guy called Van Gogh, and that he cut his ear off. You know, it's, it's not the most natural opener. And I quite like that.
0: And the, Well, the headline of the piece uh, is uh, Wayne Hosey saying, I want to be in a group that sounds like Madonna. <laughs> and it follows on, tough luck then, matey, because you're in the mission instead.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's probably, see, there was probably, office politics were a strange thing. There was probably a group within the office at that point who thought, let's just sabotage this piece. <laughs> 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 Try and get rid of this bloke we <laughs> were thinking this should not be on the cover, and of course, rightly so. And Vicky was interesting because Vicky was very affiliated to the previous regime, hmm. the the, the regime. And I don't know, I don't, I don't. The funny thing is, I don't remember much about the pace or her. Uh, yeah, if you'd said to me, "Where did it take place?" I would not have remembered Holland. And this was the mission's moment, really, wasn't it? I mean, they probably never featured again to this extent. Um, and I should have looked up beforehand. what is Wayne Hossey doing now? but I can tell you I looked it up, oh, please do please, yes. um, he's currently in
0: lockdown in Brazil with his wow. with his wife he, he lives there most of the time, splits his time between the u k and brazil um he's got very bad wi fi uh, and broadband. Uh, it took him a day and a half, three days to upload a minute and a half of video. So he's not going to be doing any live streaming, but he's going, <laughs> but he's been going through all these old uh, mission demos and cassettes and things like that. And he might put some of them out and he's been enjoying watching Killing Eve.
2: I'm always fascinated by people of, of that level, you know, who have, who have had a brief flirtation. You know, it must be very strange. Relatively young, you are pretty famous. And then you have the entire rest of your life not being that. And it's just—it's amazing how they can cope in the first place. And just also the strange lives that you must go on to have. You know, you've been the cover of Splash Hits at, I don't know, 25 years old, and now you're 60. And it, it's just always fascinates me. Yeah.
0: Well, I was going to see if I could get his attention and see if he got any recollections of this. But it seems his broadband's so bad, I thought it was a waste of time, really. <laughs> yeah. he'd, 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 get it, he'd get it next year, so...
1: I was just thinking, so if it takes him a day and a half to upload a bit of video, how long has he taking him to watch an episode of Killing Eve that's each time? That's what I was thinking. It must take him like a whole day to watch yeah. an episode. <laughs> it must be running so slowly. <laughs> this box set's been on for a month.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We're still only in episode one.
0: <laughs> so in this piece, he seems to be separating himself from the rest of the band, and that's that's mentioned in here.
2: Yes, he does. He does. He says, I don't see the mission as being a long term band. I mean, it's, it has that undercurrent of slight tragedy, the whole piece, uh, in some horrible place in Holland, and it's not really working out.
0: What I quite liked was that um, he's on the phone to Mags from Fuzzbox, who's kind of, probably the first mention of them in Smashes as well, who's kind of his girlfriend and kind of not his girlfriend.
1: I think, Sai, you, you were saying before about the sense of. Wayne Hussey being separate. There's a there's a really nice little um, vignette painted, really, uh, about how he's sort of separated himself off from the from the band. They've they've gone to have a photo session in some kind of brown field in Holland, and it says to a uh, ditch. (laughs) Yeah, next to a ditch. The group have by now got through a couple of litres of plonk and Craig and Mick run round shouting, Dick Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke! Brackets useless actor with a Dutch name who used to be in Mary Poppins films, and no one in particular. Hippiest guitarist Simon Hinkler, a man of few words but many drinks, (laughs) attempts to juggle with an empty bottle and ends up hitting himself on the head. Wayne Hussey, however, remains noticeably aloof from all the hijinks. Whilst others swig lustily from their bottles and frolic about... He stands quietly to one side, sipping politely from a plastic beaker and sniggering secretively to himself now and again. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like a happy place to be, does it, the mission in
2: 87? I, I think we were, you know, and I think we were probably struggling when we got to Peach because it's not the strongest cover line. I've got lovely legs and I think I'm perfect or whatever it is, he says. Which always, you know, you're always, always scrabbling around if you have to do that, you know, really you want something a bit stronger than that. I probably knew deep down when we got this in that it wasn't really the cover story. And why, I mean, without, without wishing to be obsessive about this, why I didn't at that point <laughs> just think, oh, do you know what, oh, let's put Janet Jackson on the cover, which I'm sure people were telling me to do, but it's probably some last vestige of Melody Maker stubbornness saying, no, wait you see this will be right. And it wasn't, but anyway,
0: anyway, let it go. 1987. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a paragraph towards the end that says, um, they might nick ideas from here, there and everywhere, especially old rock dinosaurs, but they churn it all into their own unique sound. Too tuneful to be gothic, too light of touch to be heavy metal and too well presented to be alt hippieish. They are quite simply an excellent pop group. So I didn't know if that was kind of like some justification
2: in, in the piece. I probably insisted that that goes in. Yeah.
0: Mention they're a pop
2: group. Keep my jaw. Please pretend they're a pop group. <laughs> It was interesting. When I went up to Newcastle and did that talk, um, it was the first time I've done a talk where very few people there had ever heard of Smash Hits because they were 14 and 15-year-olds. Yeah. So it was the first time I've done a talk to people who had been born since the magazine closed. And I thought I might be floundering because usually that's my joker card. You know, I could talk about the PPA for hours and then I say, if the audience are falling asleep, I say, well, you said that the magazine called Smash Hits and immediately... <laughs> Um, and of course, at this occasion, it didn't quite work because none of the students, better and I, but all of the teachers, um, a sort of per a warm, power of affection went up from the teachers. And I thought, my God, that's, that's where we've now got to. The kids, <laughs> the kids don't really remember anymore because they were born in, in this case, in 2005. But the teachers still remember it. And and I showed this issue, and some of them remembered the mission and the you know, Sisters of Mercy, etc. <laughs>
0: Okay, well in perfectly gothic fashion, shall we draw
1: a veil over that one? Draw a veil over that. <laughs> do you feel better now, Barry?
2: I feel I still it still eats away at me, but I think oh. I, I think <laughs> Let I it do go, feel, my friend. Let it go. I do Let feel better. I do feel better. Um Jackson, I mean we'll get to the Janet Jackson piece, but it, it is a wonderful looking piece. So I feel better, yeah.
1: Good. <laughs>
0: Then we get to, uh, I think, uh, a very important pairing of pop stars that, are, that I think not important right now, but will come to be important for the magazine as it moves on. And that's Mel and Kim. Mel and Kim. Um, one of them used to be a glamour model. The other one didn't. Meet Mel and Kim. Um, again, <laughs> another Lola Borg piece. So it's, is it? Yes, oh my it God. is. Yeah, yeah. And Gavin and I were discussing this yesterday, actually, because there's no mention of Stock Aitken and Waterman in the piece so it's before that whole thing has really begun and i think it's before the hit factory thing has taken hold as well where they're just churning out formulaic nonsense yeah melancholy their, their personalities they come through in their music and they really come through in this piece and I think they are probably the best of what Stock Aitken Waterman ever did because it was about it was about Mel and Kim and not about them churning stuff
2: out. It, it's a fantastic hmm. single, as well. It's respectable, isn't it? Yeah. Which was, and yes, this was just the cusp um, of them about to become pretty big with this single. And of course, you but know, yeah, Mel, Mel and Kim were a huge part of splash hits for those two years. The years I was there stocking and Waterman, obviously even more so and we then had the difficulty of you know the tragedy of, of male dying only three years after this yeah. at the age of 23 and how you deal with that you know in a magazine read by you know large largely teenagers and i remember i wasn't the editor at the time but i remember speaking to the editor who took over saying you got to be quite delicate in how you handle that stuff, you know, because for some people it would be the first experience of someone they know, you know, in inverted commas, or think they know, actually dying, and, you know, dying so tragically young. But, no, I loved Mel and Kim. I really liked Stockick and Waterman, actually. <laughs> I have to admit that, you know, it was, um, uh, not everyone did, but I, I loved that whole sort of hit factory, you know, British Motown type thing and just churning it out of this, Studio in South London. I remember the publisher saying, "We need to go out for supper with Pete Waterman." And myself and the publisher went to for a curry at the Elephant and Castle with Pete Waterman. <laughs> who just who just wanted I don't know I don't know why we did it. We, I think he wanted to meet me and and you know he was a strange character, fascinated with model railways and Northern clubs, and but just a kind of genius in his own. In his own way, at that time, and an amazing run of hits. Melanchthon being one of the first, but well, as you say, Melanchthon going on to become sort of part of that stable. But at this point, he's so young as well. At this point, twenty years old. Yeah,
0: and I think it's it's a really honest piece, and there's none of that kind of Smash It's Mickey taking going on because they're doing it to themselves. Yes. Yeah, so they're really big personalities, and I think it's just a perfect fit for Smash It's at this time.
2: I know, and uh, it's always a bit sad when you look at Mel and Kim, actually, but the the person following that you're about to get to is someone <laughs> I know very well, huh?
0: the Blow Monkeys. Ah, oh, the Blow Monkeys. So the, the lyrics for Out With Her, so the album that the Blow Monkeys would have had out at the time was um, She Was Only a Grocer's Daughter, a reference to her uh, in mm-hmm. number 10. Mm-hmm. So you, you know Dr Robert
2: quite well. Well, it, it, <clears throat> sorry, it, it's strange. I... I go on holiday every year to a place near Granada in Spain. It just so happens it's been going for 20 years. Um, and there is a, a, a lovely kind of creative community there and a recording studio, and Robert lives there. Right. And so I therefore got to know him just as one of the guys who goes for a coffee every morning at the the local cafe in the in the village square, you know in the mountains near Granada, in this tiny little little place. And we had that strange moment where I realised, <laughs> oh, my God, you're Dr. Robert, and he, he realised it in the conversation, you're the ex-editor smash it. And, of course, he couldn't help himself at one point. He said, you slagged me off once. <laughs> I thought, did I? And I think it was probably a melody maker i probably reviewed, I don't know, an album or something, I mean... But anyway, we, uh, he, he, he is now part of this setup called Monk's Road Social, which is a collective, really, of musicians. Mick Talbot, I think Weller's done some stuff on it, Matt Dayton. Kind of quite, you know, reasonably big names and great musicians, and they produced a series of albums. And they were recording it uh, last summer. Uh, and I know this sounds like a kind of strange smash at yarn, but Peter Capaldi as in the thick of it, Malcolm Tucker and Doctor Who, also goes to the same village every summer. And Peter Capaldi was in a band, you know, years ago before he became an actor. And he wrote a song and I went, so I was in the studio with Doctor Robert and Doctor Who <laughs> as they laid down, in inverted commas and smash parlance, the track, which is a single off the New Monks Road social album which he was on Joe Wiley or whatever talking about a few weeks ago before the lockdown so it's a very long winded way of saying how, I mean, it's so weird looking at this page and there's Robert all those years ago uh, and all being well I'll be sitting having coffee with him in a couple of months time in our usual haunt in Spain and going up to the studio and I must I must tell him I've done, I've done this uh, he will have something interesting to say about it I'm sure well,
0: if it's something that you can pass on to us, then please do.
2: <laughs> He's a lovely man and and, and is, is doing some really good stuff during the lockdown and putting it up on his Facebook page. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's, I've i still got this fascination with musicians. You know, when you actually see somebody who can play a number of instruments, and it's just a kind of a great gift. I don't have it. Uh, and even just sitting in the bar some nights with him, and he brings his guitar with him. And he starts playing. I do still have that kind of, how do you do that? (laughs) Um, So I'll say hello to him. Please do.
0: (laughs) Underneath that, um, Bruce Willis, the lyrics for Respect Yourself, his cover. I've
2: literally forgotten that completely, had you not? I never would have (laughs) known that he did that.
0: I I remember that he did it, yeah. But I mean, the Kane Gang had had only had it in the charts a few years before. And but when I was listening to it on, on the playlist, I think because there's a female vocalist on there, was that somebody who can actually sing on this record? Uh, it's June Pointer
2: from the Pointer Sisters.
0: Wow, uh, but yeah, Bruce Willis. Wow,
2: um, I mean, again, it's a classic example of of the democracy of Smash Hits, if you like. Because why is he there? Because he's going to sing the line, but well, whatever you, you know, is he a proper boss or not? Really, he's an probably in Moonlighting at this point. Yes, yeah. Die Hard, maybe before Die Hard. Before but,
0: Die Hard, yeah.
2: But but it's like he's in because he's got a single out and Sue Miles or whoever was doing it, you know, will have um, will have had to sit there in the office and, you know, with the headphones on and transcribed every single word of it, respect yourself, respect yourself. It's, if you look at the final chorus, it's just respect yourself. But if she got one of those wrong, if she missed one of those off, we would be inundated with letters saying... <laughs> In the Bruce Willis lyric, you have missed off the fifth line of the chorus. You know? <laughs> so uh, that's another abiding memory. It's just there would constantly be somebody sitting with head on, transcribing lyrics, because you had to get it absolutely right.
0: Moving on, we get, well... The lady that possibly should have been the cover starry. <laughs> Watch your heads, Janet Jackson's about. She seems so calm and dainty, but when the urge overcomes her, you just can't see the sky for grapes. Tom Hibbert faces the fruit. So, yes, it begins with uh, Janet Jackson's confession that she likes to um, throw fruit out of her hotel room um, and says, don't tell her mom."
2: There's probably not a huge amount here when you look at it. I mean, she will not have given, I would have thought, a... A fantastic interview because the Jacksons were just so controlled, you know, and so careful about what they said and didn't say. As I say, the main thing for us from a smash hits point of view would have been, this is Michael Jackson's sister. So it's the closest you're going to get to God, you know, uh, for the foreseeable future. And Mark Ellen had done the, I think it was the last ever Michael Jackson interview probably two years three years before this uh which is a whole story all in itself and he still has the tape it was a phone interview and he had to pretend the interview was meant to be with ian birch who was another big name in the world of smash hits and ian had to go home or something so and because it's just with those people it's too complicated if you introduce any surprise into it so Mark had to do the interview as Ian Birch, pretending he was Ian Birch. I mean, the whole thing is just <laughs> nuts. And um, he used to play it. Mark used to play this interview uh, at, at EMAP conferences, you know, when all the editors were there of sort of, here, here, here's our strange world. Here's my 10 minutes pretending to be Ian Birch and Michael Jackson <laughs> on the phone to LA. And I think it was the last time he ever spoke probably to the music press. Uh, so, of course, Janet Jackson, in her own right, as I say, is about to have a big hit, much bigger than The Mission, but we're going to move on from that. with a therapy over <laughs> the years for that. Um, and it, it's like the pictures are really good. We actually, Julian Barton, I think, see to you remember, did the pictures. You know, so to get a photo session with her, it's one along from Michael Jackson. That's what makes it more than what she probably had to say for herself.
0: Well, Michael is mentioned here and there throughout the piece uh, that there's a, a, a potential rift between the two. And Tom says it's because your dancing was too saucy. And uh, and he has to explain <laughs> to Janet what saucy means. But the, the bit that I liked was uh, you get a, a little slice of life at home with the Jacksons. We, we do have family gatherings, and the entire family will just spend an entire day together just talking and playing games. We'll play arcade games. My mother's crazy about Trivial Pursuit, so we'll all get in a game of that. And every time, my mother or my brother Tito wins, I'm not too good. And my brother Michael, well, he's not too good, so no-one else ever wins.
2: I mean, it's, it's classic. I mean, what, what you can see behind this, I mean, behind the scenes, is, is probably the brief to Tom would have been just ask her about Michael Jackson find out as much as you can about Michael Jackson the record company insistence would probably have been she's not going to talk about Michael Jackson and you have then got the clash between those two lying behind the entire thing so anything she will have said about Michael Jackson or her family will have been absolutely maxed here you know uh, and she will have wanted to talk about stuff she wants to talk about about which frankly nobody would have much interest so There will have no doubt, I think, have been a slight dynamic behind the scenes of this between us wanting her to talk about her brother and her not wanting to talk about that. She talks about a pet llama. Well, it's bizarre because I am... So this is 87, so either later in 87 or 88, Michael Jackson comes to the UK to do the famous Bad Tour, I think it would have been. At his absolute height Mm. when he did Six Nights at Wembley Stadium or something. And as part of this, you know, he's not going to do any one-on-one interviews, but a, a small group, myself included, were invited for dinner with him at the Gills Halls, and there were probably six of us. And I think I may be right in saying that Piers Morgan was one of them, because at the time he would have been running the bizarre column on the sun. So it would have been five National Fleet Street pop editors plus me as the editor of and we sit. I mean, again, I wish I could remember more. I remember he was wearing the full regalia, <laughs> the kind of mil- the military outfit, the sash, the white gloves. Yeah. And Bubbles was on the tour with him, but to my disappointment, was not actually in the room, unfortunately, at the Guildhall. And he, he said, oh, re- "I remember he had he didn't have the strongest of handshakes, and he had a very strange voice." You know, "Hi, Barry," and that would have been that's all I can remember. I don't think. It was a sort of him plus security plus minders and managers and six of us, I don't know, 12 people having dinner. I mean, how, how mad, you know, <laughs> is that? Um, what did you do last night at dinner with Michael Jackson? Um,
0: <laughs> what did you have to eat? Can you remember?
2: I did, God, only, I think it was, in, it was in, why I was in the guild hall, I don't know. But um, of, the unfortunate thing, of course, with Michael Jackson is because of, because of the allegations against him, you know, of recent years, it's harder, to, it's harder to remember, you know, just the kind of the sheer pop genius that he was. And again, when I was doing that talk in Newcastle, you know, I, we went to the Q&A and the, and the kids said, you know, who's the, who's the most famous person you've ever met? You know, which is what people always want to know. And I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I did it with... I had dinner with Michael Jackson. I could see the teacher wanting to be, me to move on rather quickly. Anybody else? You know? Because, of course, unfortunately, you know, he's, he's not known now just for, you know, what we knew him as, which was this kind of pop genius working with Quincy mm-hmm. Jones doing these amazing records. Which is sad, you know, but uh, yeah, I, had, I need to I need to freshen up my act. I realised.
0: So, who, who would the uh, substitute, your second most famous person, be then?
2: Well, I suppose I mean I always uh, we're probably not far from an issue. I I've got a long association with you too. Yeah. Who, uh, in fact are the next lyric
0: oh we'll get to them in a few moments then um, Gav any pieces from this that stand out to you I, I, I thought it was quite a fun piece actually
1: it, yeah it it's, was a very it's fun piece I, I, yeah it's Tommy but it's always going to be fun isn't it he's always <laughs> going to find the uh, the unusual and the strange angle yeah Um, I picked out the same bit about Trivial Pursuit and Scrabble just because I thought that was a a nice image of the Jackson family playing together. But also, you know, the stuff, Barry, you mentioned bubbles before, and there's quite a bit Mm. about animals in here. And I'm just wondering, having watched Tiger King recently on Netflix, I'm thinking it might be quite a good signifier for just how bonkers people are, but the more wild and exotic animals they've got, the madder they probably are. She's talking about um, the deer, she says... um, one of the deer, the father, he hurt one of the babies. He hurt the baby and he broke his neck. So he died. But they had another baby and it was a girl this time, not a boy. So he separated the father from the mother and the baby. And all she does is eat. And she's bigger than a mother now. And she's so pretty. And then we've got another llama. Her name's Lola. And he goes, on. <laughs> like this. And then there's stuff about meeting Bubbles. And uh, Michael's been teaching Bubbles tricks. And uh, he says that he, he's learning to roller skate now he'll take a few steps and then he'll fall on his side. I went down to where Michael was filming his film short and I saw these little roller skates and I thought they were for a little kid. And then I found out they were Bubbles roller skates and they're white and they've got like a star on the side of the skates and they've got red wheels. And then Tom says, and on she rattles about the wonders of the animal kingdom, (laughs) saying she still wants to own a king cobra. And it just goes on. But I mean, it it kind of, it's an interesting window into the world of the mega famous and mega rich and slightly unhinged.
2: I mean, I watched, I watched all of Tiger King and thought exactly that. And you you, you sort of get used to it now, don't you? <laughs> Mike, Bubbles is, Bubbles has become such a part of folklore, but, you know, it's, it is a bit nuts. You know, he takes a tent <laughs> with him, who, you know, we get into the lift with him. Yeah. And we, we, as I say, we'd be at the hall and we'd sort of, you know, be slightly disappointed. Oh, Bubbles isn't joining us, you know. It, it's, <laughs> It's a chip and z, yeah, and yeah, I think exactly that.
1: I was just thinking, looking at the the, the photo of Janet with a, uh, a key dangling out her ear, and she's wearing the same thing in um, in the video that's on the video playlist. And I'm wondering if she has a problem with it. Does she need a keyring aid?
2: That's good. <laughs> Okay. If, you work on that, if you do some work on that, it's good. Ah,
1: <laughs> oh, I thought I'd worked it up already, Barry. I didn't need any more work. You're a tough crowd. You're a tough crowd. Moving on, moving on. We get uh, you 2 the lyrics
0: for With or Without You, the first single from the Joshua Tree. So this is where U2 catapult into uh, superstardom and filling stadiums the world over. And the beginning of, I guess, U2 Incorporated. Yeah. So, Barry, you mentioned that, that you knew U2 a little bit. Yeah,
2: it, it, it was pure again, as uh, so much in life and my life, just pure serendipity. I happened to be, I went to university in Dublin between 1976 and 1980. So, U2 were just starting. And I was just starting to write when I was there. Before I went into the library system, I'd be writing reviews, trying to get them printed. And quite often they would be of you too. And of course, you know, all they were at that point was one of a number of Dublin bands. So you would get to know them and hang out with them and have no real inclination that this was going to be, for a period at least, the biggest band in the world. You know, how would one have known this? But, But then through the Melody Maker, I... The time I was there, interviewed them a number of times. You know, and got to know them pretty pretty well, as much as one ever does. But really, this would have been, yeah, so he he would be the answer, he would be the more acceptable answer. Now too, the most, I suppose the most famous person I've ever met. You forget sometimes how famous they are. And this was the start of the kind of global domination. Because this is the Joshua Tree set in you know, the picture. on. Yeah. And it was tricky for us on Smash Hits because we had—they were so big that we had to—we couldn't ignore them. But you can imagine they looking like they look in this picture, and the whole—you know—they were on—they un, were unlikely to be bursting out of a birthday cake any day soon. <laughs> um, and they were probably one of the few that we—that we maybe let through, maybe because I knew them, and maybe because they were so big, but. We put them on the cover later in 87. And I think it is pretty much a standard Anton Corpion shot of them rather than them doing anything. But it's a nice picture. And I think at that point, we were probably at a trade-off, which was, look, it's you 2 We've got, you know, they're, they're, everybody loves them. <laughs> which at that point, they, you know, they were one of those just massive groups. 87 was their year, you know, Joshua Tree and the whole explosion. So... This is this is a moment in time. This is just this just about to happen for them. It's literally just about to happen.
0: And what about any encounters that you had with them once you joined Smash Hits?
2: I remember uh, one of the few times I was allowed out of the office was for what used to be called the BPI Awards, which became the Brits, when everybody would get together, uh, the entire industry, and Smash Hits had this fantastic idea that which. <laughs> which we did a number of times over the years, where because they were all going to be there, Phil Collins, Bono, and uh, Mick Jagger, and Bross, and whoever, the only way you could get around them all would be to ask them to do something, to do the same thing. Uh, And it was agreed that I would ask them all to draw a duck. (laughs) So I had a notepad with me, (laughs) and they would draw. (laughs) We would sometimes do it with, like, their autograph, but we would get them to draw a duck, and then we would take the drawings (laughs) to a... Graphologist (laughs) in inverted commas. Who was some, you know, some charlatan hand-writing interpreter in Covent Garden or so And we would pay them some money and we we wouldn't tell them. You know, we'd try and sort of do it properly and we'd say, you know, what does this duck represent? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, it would be perfect because, you know, it it would be Bono's. They would say, you know, this this person is a very strong personality. You know, um, he, he wants to save the world. <laughs> it's Paulo, you know, um, that, and we may have we may have played around with it a bit, but I mean, as much as possible, it was it was it was, it was genuine. And so I went, and, and I remember I sort of maybe it was me reading too much into it, but I got that sense of them thinking this is what you've been reduced to. <laughs> You, know, you used you used to be a proper journalist, interviewing us on a windswept beach in Dublin about the meaning of life, and now you're asking us to draw a frigging duck. for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still see them, well, I don't see them anymore, but I, I would bump into them, funnily enough, over the years through connections in Ireland and... You know, they, uh, there were years where they would come. They would dominate the Q Awards, and I'd moved on to to be sort of managing director of the part of the company that published Q. So I'd get to go to the awards, and I'd you know they were lovely. I'd always, if I met them now, I'd, you know we'd have a hug and a chat. But yeah. I think they felt the duck was was a bridge too far.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You two were actually on the front of the the last edition that we were looking at, so the one from the end of 87 and uh, we were discussing the band. But what we didn't discuss was the, the nicknames that they had in the pages of Smash It. So I don't know if you recall those, Perry. Uh,
2: well I well I know that so Adam Clear off Clayton <laughs> goes back to the duck incident yeah. because he, he didn't actually tell me to clear off. He said something much worse than that, but we had to <laughs> we had to dilute it down to clear off. That was when I'd asked him to draw the duck that night.
3: Um,
2: and I think we had Bo- we had Bobo, uh, the hedge, uh Adam Clearoff Clayton and the other one. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Larry, Larry. Be, Larry became a bit of a pinup. I mean, Larry, Larry went from being the, the, you know the, the kind of young guy with a terrible haircut and suddenly blossomed <laughs> into this you know rather sexy you know icon with the hair swept back and all the, the kind of biker look. It's incredible to have watched them. You know, they literally have gone from being the kind of student, the band, in the student union bar to this. You know behemoth Mm. Um, it was fascinating to watch that relatively close up over 40 years
1: so let's move on to the letters page there's quite an angry letter from uh, a young man called Simon it wasn't me it wasn't me And it wasn't you no another Simon who um, is complaining about a a recent feature about heavy metal which (laughs) he read in his little brother's mag and he's, he's absolutely furious, this lad, really That's is. He yeah. says, uh, I don't know what makes you think that the wimpy, washed-out rock peddled by pufters like Europe and Bon Jovi is HM, but you're very, very wrong. <laughs> And he's talking about the true metal greats like DC and Hawkwind and Metallica. He says, that the rest of the article was okay, but I wish you treated Hawkwind with a bit more respect. I mean, to be honest, if in 1987 you're reading Smash Hits and wanting Hawkwind to get a very positive write-up, you may be looking in the wrong place, you know, but... Uh, is also talking about the uh, thrashing death metal bands that should be featured, like Agent Steel, Halloween, Possessed, Megadeth. I mean, Barry, uh, did you consider putting any of those on the front cover after well, the mission?
2: I, <laughs> thank you. I mean, to go back to, I suppose, to the basics, the, the, again, the truth is that if those bands had had hits, they would have been in smash hits, you know, he, hence the name. The heavy metal, hard rock end of it was always a bit tricky to deal with, but if it was Iron Maiden... Uh, or Def Leppard, I suppose, would be the ones that I remember. I mean, if they, or, or maybe ACDC, if they were in the charts or were mm. touring, the magazine had got to such a scale that, that there would invariably be some people buying the magazine who would like those bands, you know, as RSVP showed. You know, it wasn't all yeah. just, the hardcore would be Bross, Kylie, Rick Astley... Jason, but you did have when you when you when you're being read by so many people. I mean, at one point, I think it was estimated it was being read by sort of one in two teenagers in the country. You were obviously sweeping up Goths and heavy metal and Yeah. Um and, and some of those bands would cross over, you know, the cure, you know, really interesting or Joy Division slash New Order, you know, who were both enemy and Smash Hits, just because they became so popular. And the magazine was so popular.
0: You just named the cover stars of the following two editions of the mag: John bon Jovi and Robert
2: Smith. There you go, mm. Robert Smith. I mean, Robert Smith. People we loved him because you know he was a proper pop star, and he he played the game as as Hepworth talked about. You know, he was he was he was he was happy to be in the Melody Maker and the NME, but he was equally happy to be in the cover of Smash Hits. And you you do have to this day a generation who who are more on the goth, alternative, indie. Side who loved Smash Hits partly because we would put those people in because they were popular. Now, Hawkwind (laughs) and the bands he mentions here, Agent Steel, Celtic Frost, and Hellion, they're not going to be in Smash Hits any day of the week because nobody but this guy had heard of them. But it was more, it was very much, you know, your popularity rather than your style.
1: Yeah, he seems to be confusing Smash Hits with Kerrang.
2: Another
0: later up publication uh, yeah, in later yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. It was the um, the letter after this one that I, I quite liked. Dear Mister Typeful, did you know that there were four navels in the February twenty fifth edition of Smash Hits? Love from a
2: perv. <laughs> you see, this would have been. This is probably the period when Tom Hibbert is starting to take control of the letters page. Yeah and black type and getting tea towels made and just living in this parallel universe, which was just a very strange place. Uh, And, of course, because the letters page is important, but to some extent, again, you would leave that to the person who wanted to do it because it's a bit like the singles reviews. You would have thousands of letters and you would have to, you know, pick the six or seven and then you had to get them responded to. And, you know, it was all very um, analogue. And handcrafted, you know, there was no, there was no easy way of doing this. And if Hibbs wanted to go slightly mad and esoteric with the letters page, you would you would let him rather than have to do the letters page yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds a terrible reason, but quite often it's, it's the truth. Do
1: you still have a black type tea towel, Barry?
2: I do have a black type tea towel, and in fact, um, somebody recently got in touch with me that they were selling them. Uh, I try to remember, it was an aid of something and they were selling them on the internet for quite a lot of money. Um, I mean, you, you talked a bit about badges before, you know, the whole sort of what you would now call Smash It's merchandising. A, it wouldn't have been called that, and B, it was done in a very ramshackle, editorially led way, became hugely successful. Uh, and I remember we had, a, we had an argument, I remember this argument we had with the publishers So we devised a badge around this time, and the badge said, pin it on, take it off, hours of fun guaranteed. (laughs) (laughs) And having the stand-up raw with you know the publisher and the marketing director with them saying, But you can't just say that, you know, it's gotta promote something. And we'd say, No, no, you know, just it says smash it, pin it on, take it off, hours of fun guaranteed. And of course it became one of the biggest Selling, you know, longest lasting badges we've ever done. And I think if it was today, you would probably make a fortune out of this merchandising, which at the time, of course, you just tended to give away as a bit of an afterthought.
0: Put the kettle on mother I'm parched.
2: I'm parched, yeah, <laughs> put exactly. <laughs> that was my
0: particular favourite.
2: I mean, and again, you know, you would never have talked about the brand then, uh, and you would never have dreamt that, that we'd be sitting here talking about this. <laughs> Thirty-seven years later, but I suppose also that there was so much money being made out of the out of the meat and drink, the magazine, that you almost didn't have to worry about what would now be called ancillary revenue streams or something like that.
0: Do we want to talk about Genesis? What do they represent to us?
2: The only thing I would say <laughs> in that is it's very, two, two things we talked about earlier. One is people might be surprised that Genesis are in there, mm. because Genesis are not a very... But, but again, it's like Genesis will have had a record coming out, which is probably featured at some point in this issue or a feature issue. Genesis were a popular group. The magazine would have been big enough that they would have some people reading it who would be into Genesis. Um, so they would be, you know, they would they'd be top of the list, but they'd be on it. And also, at some point, I will have got a phone call from Genesis's record company saying, can you send somebody to Miami, um, you know, for three days to do Genesis? And, I'll, and they'll have said, can we have them on the cover? And I'll have said, no, you can't put them on the cover of as It, as, but we can give you two pages is it? At the back. Yeah. Um, and the world being as it was then they'll I said okay and I'll have run Chris Heath and said can you get to Miami tomorrow (laughs) I mean it it just seems absurd and he will have said yeah okay and he and a photographer probably will have flown to been flown to Miami uh, paid for by the record company stay in a very nice hotel for a few nights interview the band and come home this is how it used to be you know, um, uh, and quite a lot of the time, I mean, I felt like a travel agent. You know, I'd be in the office pretty much, you know, 10 o'clock till 7 8 p.m. every day, whilst the <laughs> freelancers and the writers be jetting around the world, <laughs> hanging out with pop stars in exotic locations. That's how it felt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this uh,
0: kind of ties back to something that we were talking about in the last edition of the podcast where you two were on the cover, there was a feature on Sting in there, and a few other artists that within a few months or certainly within a year of the era that we're talking about now, you probably wouldn't see in Smash It's and that they would be considered a Q band. So was there ever, do you ever recall there being a kind of division of of this artist is a Q artist and this one is a a Smash It's artist? Was there ever a conversation that that you were aware of, that something like that happened?
2: No, I mean, there would never have been a, a company edict, you know, saying here's a list of Q bands. Here's a list of smash hits bands. I think I think a number of things probably happened. I think I think Smash Hits was at its most successful when it was at its broadest, you know. And I think mm. I think that period lasted from it's in from from 1980 to 1990, let's say. You know, there there it had the territory to itself, and it it was governed by a an unwritten rule that that everybody gets into this if they're if they're big enough and prepared to play the game, I think maybe subtly the emergence of Q and its rise and its success maybe na- smash hits its natural territory a bit narrower, or it maybe made the people who were then running smash hits think that they had to be a bit narrower. Um, but there was no, there was never any saying uh, that you know we've got to give you two to Q this month. It would never have. That would never have played. Uh, and in fact, some of the most intense competition internally was between Splash H&Q and, and Just 17. You know, you'd almost rather, you used to go to the PPA Awards, which would be the equivalent of the kind of the Oscars for the magazine industry, and you'd much rather lose to um, Garden Answers than lose to Just 17. <laughs> Because there's just 17 people who are on the floor below, and you had to look at them for the next year with their trophy, <laughs> you know. Um, but, and, 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 you know, Q then led to Empire, you know, and I think Smash Hits and which led to Mojo, which led to FHM, and Smash Hits gradually over a period of time. And everybody says this, you know, everyone who's been editor said, oh, well, it, it's interesting. It started to go downhill the day after I left. <laughs> um, and it's not entirely true, but um, I think in general, it probably had a golden period in the 80s. And in the 90s, it still had its moments because enough bands were coming along uh, and the method of, the method of consume, consumption was still broadly the same. It was only, I think, really when the world started to change around it. And to some extent, the magazine maybe had run its course. Then it became unsustainable, and it closed at the right time. You know, it wasn't. It would be terrible if it was still here. I think you know, kind of struggling on, selling ten thousand copies. Disgrace
0: itself, like Uncle Disgusting. Yeah.
2: Yes, I think it did the right thing. It did twenty-seven years, twenty-eight years, which is incredible, really. You know, mm. for TV, show last for twenty-eight years. They make they make you know special documentaries about it. This is a twenty-eight year run of for the vast majority of that time, incredible success. I don't
0: know how we get on to that, but anyway. No, no, no. We're talking about Q and it just kind of, yeah. Yeah. Unfolded from there, that's absolutely fine. No, like I say, we just felt like looking back at it and looking at the covers and looking at the covers of Q from the same time, there just seems to be this split that occurs at the end of 87, whereby you have U2 as being the last rock band or band of that type that appear on the cover of the 80s and that they, you know, they may still appear in the magazine, but certainly as cover stars go, I'm looking at them here. After that, we get um Philip Schofield, Wet Wet, Wet. The Wets. Madonna, Aha, Tiffany, Bros, and then somebody's ripped the page out of the book. So I can't see what's after. <laughs>
2: <that>. <laughs> I think that was probably more. No, I think that was more what was happening. We were what was happening in the pop world. So we at this period of Wayne Hussey in the cover, we're about to we don't know it, but we're about to have this explosion of Stockade and Waterman, Bross, Rick Astley, Jason, Donovan, Kylie Minogue, and the magazine was ready for it. You know, it, it had taken a while to find its fate when I came along and probably by the end of 87, it's like we're almost like, we're ready now for the next big thing. And suddenly they came from nowhere, particularly Bross and particularly... Particularly Rick Astley, and I remember, you know, us being having that sense of, okay, we're, we're going to write this for all it's worth, you know, right from start through to finish. Um, I think it was more that rather than any conscious decision to kind of drop the rock acts. And then going into the early 90s, you then had, you know, the whole Manchester scene and uh, uh, clubbing and uh, Naina Cherry being in the cover, and it just became a narrower terrain. I also think magazines develop self-imposed rules about themselves you know after a period of success well this is what works and it's very hard actually to say what works is is breadth rather than justice you
3: know.
0: Let's look at the uh, singles reviews, shall we? So David Hepworth described it as being an absolute chore. So was this ever anything that you did yourself, Barry, or was it always delegated to someone else? You no, know, I,
2: I did do it, actually. I did do it, although not that often, because I say a bit like, why did I never go to Hawaii with Cindy Lauper? Well, because I'd have to spend three days at the typesetters and the colour house and the printers down in Carfilia or wherever it was. So... <laughs> You would be pushed for time. You know, I spent most of my time as editor managing the team, being in meetings with, you know, management, talking to record companies, doing the flat plan, you know, trying to physically get the ads in and lay out. All the stuff you have to do when you're editing a magazine at this moment in time, the idea of then taking on the singles on top would have just felt like uh, a bridge too far, I think. So You would. I did do it a couple of times. But most of the time, you would form it out to a freelancer. A bit like Bits, you would use it to try out a few people that you had your eye on. Roe Newton would have fallen into that category. I think, if I remember, Roe was based in Manchester and was potentially a kind of northern stringer. So that's, you you can see the careers of people in smash hits. You know, quite often, they'll start on the singles, uh, even though, actually, as, as Hepworth would say, it is one of the harder things to do because... You have to cover about, you know, 20 different acts. It's interesting she's picked too. Mm. Uh as the single of the fortnight, and it was such a kind of iconic song. Yeah. This single will send tingles down your spine, yeah.
0: There's still a lot of big hitters in, in,
2: in it's this place. Yeah. It's a hell of a fortnight. Bon Jovi, Brad Adams, Blue Monkey, Susan the Banshees, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, wow, we have Madonna. Owen Paul, yeah. Oh, <laughs> all the all the greats, all the greats. I,
1: I tried to track that song down. That's um, it's very unusual in these days of the internet not to be able to find a song either on a streaming service or on YouTube. But bring me back that spark by Owen Paul. Couldn't find it anywhere. No, I really want to hear it as well because it it sounds like quite a bizarre kind of song. It just it's in a um, funny interesting.
2: Kind of but- <laughs> Darming with faint prayers, I suspect from Rome Newton.
1: But, uh, yeah, no idea what it sounds like, that one. No, will pr- probably sound just like his hit, but with
0: different words or something like that. I mean, o- o- Owen Paul's so memorable that I've got a compilation CD somewhere, of like the hits of 86 or something like that, and they call him Paul Owen on there.
2: <laughs> 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 what, one interesting piece of my niche is Hollywood Beyond. Yeah. or are singles reviewed here. And Hollywood Beyond had been on the cover of Smash Hits, just very shortly before I joined. And I, 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 there was a sort of part of the mythology was that that was one of the reasons why the previous editor was no longer there. <laughs> I think there was a feeling, I think he'd left of his own volition, but there was a feeling that the magazine was going down too obscure or cool uh, a route with people like Hollywood Beyond. And the type of cover that, we, well, I don't know, it was always presented Rather unfairly, I'm sure. As he, you know, here's why we need regime change. (laughs) And I just sort of look at the thing. I don't really understand that, but okay, part of the history. Uh, The interesting choice, I think, and probably the controversial choice, is that she didn't make Madonna single of the fortnight. Mm. So to choose you two over Madonna is quite a quite a statement. Give the young Irishman a chance. <laughs> uh,
0: and then on, on the opposite page, uh, a feature call, or a column called Thing. I see um, that. A review fashion special. It's the new sensation that's sweeping the nation, except it probably isn't. Gavin, do you want to talk us through this one?
1: Oh, well, I, rem- I remember this at the time, yeah, I bought this issue. It was probably getting towards the end of when I was buying Smash It's regularly still. I was starting to kind of outgrow it a bit, and um, but I re- I remember this and thinking this is, this looks great idea. <laughs> Walking around with an album sleeve on your head, or if you've got gate folds, you can wear them as trousers. <laughs> and I remember trying it only in the comfort of my bedroom. I didn't go out and about, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and then just thinking no, because when it rains, you're just going to get your album cover wet and you're going to look like an idiot. But I mean, Barry, was, it, was this an actual thing in America or was this just made up for the do magazine?
2: I, do you know, I'm just looking at this and I do not remember this. Um,
3: <laughs>
2: I suspect, let me just think, I think this might have been a little bit made up. I don't remember anybody ever doing it. Um, and it's a very kind of smart thing to do. But, and also I'm noticing it's not credited to anyone. Which makes me think it might have been a sort of bits type joke. Yeah. That we might, we may have. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, well, I'm in magazines. <laughs> sometimes, so, so, sometimes, magazines is just purely practicalities. It, it may be an ad was meant to be there that has dropped out, you know, quite often would happen. They say, What have we got, you know, last minute? We're at the printers, and that has got this kind of feel to it. I cannot believe it <laughs> these people uh I'm also just thinking of the date is it an April Fool, possibly uh, oh of course possibly, yes I, uh, never uh, of I never thought of
0: that I never thought of that I bet phone. that's it good point is is there anybody there in the photos then that, that you recognise a member of staff or anything like
2: that <laughs> I think, you know that's the weirdest thing I've actually got these pictures and the photos are credited to Julian Barton um I was just looking to see if they credited the words to April or anybody. I don't know. I think this is probably made up, but (laughs) (laughs) how would we ever know? (laughs) Unless the person who writes it is listening and gets in touch. But I just can't believe this. It wouldn't have been that hard to see. It would not have been that hard to go out to Carnaby Street, and that looks like Carnaby Street, and just stop a load of people back there and say, hey, would you put this in your head for smash hits? They've probably been quite hard.
0: Uh, I like uh, Mike, who's the uh, the second person who's uh, photographed wearing uh, a couple of gatefold sleeves as trousers so you don't see his face. Um, you want me to try gatefold sleeves as trousers? Yeah. Tries on a pair of the anti heroin product and the dam's anything trousers. Great, nice and roomy. A bit flary, though. I think the dam should be on the other leg. Can I take them off now? They're not much good for walking in. You can't bend That's your knees. Mad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I really like bent the uh, the Belgian tourist in the uh, bottom left corner he says part, uh, he's yeah. he's wearing a damned album as well. He says, yes, it's very sexy, isn't it? Of course, we do it all the time in Belgium. Yes, I like the idea very much. I think it's very fashionable it's much better than compact discs
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a classic it's a classic example as well of a, <laughs> ma- a magazine starting to have the confidence to do this kind of thing, you know because you've got to be quite confident that. It's so, it's so off the beaten track um, that you've got a certain amount of confidence that the, that the readership will tolerate it. Uh, and the publishers are going to not sort of hold an inquiry into, you know, is this really happening? <laughs> it just looks like a bit, of, a bit of fun, well done.
1: That was great. I like that very much. The last
0: record sleeve uh, that's been tried on is by Sarah. I want the mission. Can I try it on? Oh, it's the 12-inch. I must say, I think I'd prefer the album cover if I was going to wear it. Do I like the mission? They're brilliant. So... That's probably me just trying to desperately
2: justify the coverage. choice
0: I've made that one up. Another them. tick for the mission there. <laughs> if all else fails. Yeah. And then a review of uh, Benny King in concert, um, film review, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, and then the albums. Oh, look, Barry, there's a couple of albums that you reviewed there, Atlantic Star and uh, The Icicle Works. Oh, my God. It very, uh, very generously gave Atlantic Star eight out of ten. The ice works seven out of ten.
2: I mean, it's interesting. Just before that, as well. Oh yeah, just a classic again. The assumption being it's Smash, It's operated in this narrow field, and actually, the live reviews are deep purple and Benny King. I mean, it's it's not what you remember. It's not even what I remember. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't have known that. I was I was the, the editor editor um, on the album. <laughs> 8 out of 10 for Atlantic Star. I don't know who Atlantic Star were, and I don't remember that album. Um, <laughs> the icicle <As You> <laughs> works was probably, again, a slight hangover from the Melody Maker, and I would have I would have known Ian McNabb and done stuff with the Icyclo works, and I was quite friendly with Pete Wiley and the whole Wah, Echo the Bullyman Crucial 3 thing, and I'm probably, probably taking a little bit of that generosity with me into smash hits I, because on the one level who cares nobody really nobody's going to care about the album review of the icicle Works. so i may as well give it seven rather than give it four so this is maybe me being a little bit like oh, well okay I'll, I'll put one in here for the old crew rather than do i listen to this album to this day probably not
1: <laughs> i think what's interesting here about the Works review and the review before it that uh, William Shaw does of Erasers the Circus is the uh, erasure one starts with the same phrase that your one ends with Barry, shimmering shards can we just talk a little bit about the, the genesis of that phrase, the shimmering shards um, that and, was one of know, these
2: there's this whole sort of lexicon that you almost had to learn when you got in to the magazine you know, when you joined the staff and shimmering shards was <laughs> shimmering shards was, was a, a it was sort of what the edge, the edge from U2 would play, you know, that kind of weird edge-like sound, and it would just become known as Shimmering (laughs) Shards. So therefore, you would be sitting in the office and the U2 would come on, or anybody sort of sounded vaguely like them, which, of course, a lot of people did, and somebody would say, ah, Shimmering Shards, ahoy. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, I've you see, I've either put this into the Icicle Works to try to show that I'm in on the joke, <laughs> or yeah. it's probably been added by by the sub editor <laughs> as a little kind of private joke at my expense. <laughs> but yeah, it was that. It was that. Just that sound of big country, U2, the Alarm, that kind of weird guitar. You don't hear it anymore. Uh, yeah, sort of I Celtic mean, he, he, rock. And- yes, even U2 stopped doing it. And it was just become known as Shimmering Shores. And if you said any of the Smash its team to this day, Shimmering Shards, I would know exactly exactly, <laughs> exactly what you mean. But I have not thought of it for a long time, so
3: there it is.
0: Well, I think that brings us pretty much to the end of the magazine,
1: apart from mutterings. Mutterings. How did it get put together? I mean, I know it's kind of the gossip column, but who was responsible for gathering it together and what kind of process was involved?
2: I, well, there were two things. One, there was always a Kipper Williams cartoon. So Kipper Williams, if you see the cartoon, it was uh, the regular smash hits person. I think he was a friend of Tom Hibbert's. If I remember right then, Mark Ellen had sort of been brought in. And I inherited him. And He became, maybe he's become quite a well-known cartoonist. He does stuff for the eating standard and people. Um, and then some of this would have been done by Tom, Tom Hibbert again, because Tom is brilliant at black type mutterings, the, the, the trails for the next week. Or you may have given it again to one of the newer breed, so there was no set way of doing it as I remember. Um you would quite often because it was so stylized and so uniquely smash hits, you could you could almost do this as a test if you had if you were recruiting two people if you were recruiting a writer from the final two and you wanted to check you'd give them and say okay have a go at mutterings. So that it would, yeah it would be a kind of revolving fate which brings me to my final story if you'd like to hear it. Just towards the end of 1987, we needed to hire a new writer. And we got down to the last two, and it was Mike Sutar, who's gone on to have an amazing career and won the Industry Hall of Fame Award for setting up Stylist and Shortlist magazine and doing other things. And it was down to Mike Sutar, who at the time was working at the Virgin press office, and a guy from up north, I think from Darlington, called Jim Moyer. Um, <laughs> and I give. These are the two applicants, the two finalists, and I gave the job to Mike. And apparently I said to Mike at the time, I gave you the job because you were funnier than the other guy. (laughs) And, of course, Mike goes on to become Mike Sutor, and Jim Moyer, two years later, changes his name to Vic Reeves. So the legend becomes that I have appointed Mike Sutor ahead of Vic Reeves because Mike is funnier. And, of course, my only defence is he wasn't Vic Reeves at the time. He was just a guy from <laughs> Culture <called you> <laughs> But it is assumed such urban myth that I was, actually at a, I was actually at a charity pop quiz with hundreds of people at it, raising money for Gavin Reed, who tragically died a few years ago, former art director of Smash Hits. Um, and Richard Bacon was the host. I mean, we were at the Hippodrome in London, hundreds of people. And the question in round four is, which northern comedian was turned down for a job at Smash Heads? I'm sitting in the audience, desperately trying <laughs> to say to people he wasn't famous at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, people are putting answers in Peter Kay, and you know it's like how did this become? <laughs> because the the, the, the the subtext is who's the clown in charge that turned him down? <laughs> <laughs> M- um, and it gives Mike and I great amusement to this day to think that I hired him ahead of victories, but also I suppose indicative You know, I always remember hearing that the NME the famous gunslinger ad that went into the NME in the late 70s out of which they hired Tony Parsons and Julie Burchill the five applicants of so that were Tony Parsons, Julie Burchill Paul Morley, Nick Hornby and Sebastian Fulks you know, I an mean, incredible kind of. Mm. That's the five people who want the job in the enemy. And to get to a point, you know, in 1987, with the two applicants, are Vic Reeves and <laughs> a guy who would go on to, you know, do great things in our industry. I suppose shows you what a what a wonderful time it was.
1: Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that story. That's good. Yeah, I
2: mean, it's, I mean, it's it's, and I remember him. You know. And I don't remember when he. Uh, I don't remember thinking, oh, it's, it became Victories until a few years later when it started to be used as a as an internal email pop quiz question.
1: So Barry, now we've gone through the whole episode in yes. in quite a bit of depth. Do you feel at least partially, you know, you've purged yourself of um, <laughs> of the regret and? <laughs> memories.
2: I do actually. I mean, I, 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 whenever I do these talks, I always show two covers as a way of not to do it. One is Wayne Hussley, uh, and the other is Robert Downey Jr. on the cover, the launch cover of a magazine called Neon, which was a sort of alternative to Empire that we did. The people who did Empire did Neon in the mid nineties, and it was a, it was it it was a terrible cover in all the traditional senses. It's black and white you don't actually know it's Robert Downey Jr. because it's such a strange picture of him and the cover line is wasted. But it has gone on to become, you know, a sort of collector's item, partly because it was the first issue of Neo, and partly because it's, on one level, an amazing cover. Um, and I guess this was what I've learned from it all, is you can do these things which at the time seem disastrous uh, and commercially don't work, but you do learn a lot from them and in some cases they go on to become collector's items that people you know because they're not the norm and i suppose looking back now 33 years later isn't it fantastic that we were that there was once a time children when we put wayne hossie from the mission on the cover of the biggest (laughs) selling pop magazine in the world (laughs) and got away with it and survived (laughs) and of course it was the prelude to it was a prelude to the greatest success the magazine ever had over the next two to three years.
0: So who was on the cover of the biggest selling issue, do you
2: remember? Yes, I do. And it's an, it's another pop quiz answer that people never get right because they always think it's Bross or Jason and Kylie. It's actually Yaz yes. for so The Only Way Is Up. The story behind it briefly is it's, it's because it was the first televised smash Hits awards poll winner's issue. So, Smash Edge had started the poll winners, and we went on TV in I think 89, maybe 88, but 89 was the kind of apogee, the crowning, the big, it was on mainstream television. And the following Wednesday or whatever, the magazine came out, her, she had been the closing act on the poll winners' concert with The Only Way Is Up. It was number one, it sold a huge amount of copies, and the sort of combination of all of those factors, particularly the TV exposure. Put it over the million. I think it was the only issue that went over a million. It did like a million and 20,000. And obviously it was just before I left. So it was a fantastic parting shot. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, Tom Maloney, who I mentioned earlier, took me out for a drink. And he said, we're launching a film version of Q and we want you to be the editor. And I said, I know nothing about films. In fact, I can't even say the word properly. Films. (laughs) I know nothing about films. And he said, that's why you'd be perfect for the job. Uh, and the rest is history and another podcast, I suspect.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking at you. The, the, the Yaz cover would be in about October, November 88.
2: Okay. I think we might have had one or two after that on the back of that sold over a million, but it's, it's to my understanding, and I think I could have statistical evidence from the Audit Bureau of Circulation <laughs> to back this up, that is the biggest selling issue of smash hits of all time obviously I'm very proud to have been the custodian of the brand at that point before heading off to the world of Hollywood when when things got even stranger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> dot, dot, dot.
2: Dot, dot, dot. <laughs>
1: yeah, so looking
2: back at that period, who
0: was your own particular favourite smash hits pop star?
2: I think probably either Bross or Rick Astley. Br- Bross were Brawls were just huge for such a for a very brief period of time, but they were sort of perfect for Smash Hits. You know, they came from nowhere, they looked really good. They had those do you remember the kind of Grolsch bottle tops on their boots? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they they combined a number of different things, kind of style, and you know, they looked fantastic and, and, and they were they were ready to do anything you wanted them to do, you know. Um, and I remember, you know, going over to New York because I was allowed out at one point to go and meet the publishing team behind Star Hits, which was the American version of Smash Hits, and Bros were all they were there. We went out to a club with them, and it sort of seems crazy looking back on it. Um, but Rick Astley was probably the one where I felt the magazine was most set up and ready for somebody to come along, and it happened to be him. And yeah, he was perfect because he was the T boy, and he was you know he was from the North and he had a backstory and it was a really big pig and (laughs) he was stocking and waterman, And again, you know, he he was kind of, he was the boy next door. You know, you just think, Oh God, he looks like literally the guy next door, you know? Um, and to watch his success, which again, at the time was brief, although he's, he's kind of come back as a bros, bizarrely, uh, through that documentary, he was, it was fantastic fun. Just, you know, we I felt really confident at that point that, we kind of knew what we were doing, and I was able to kind of go on from that and leave the magazine in very good hands.
1: Thank you very much, Barry. It's been really no, fascinating fun. here in the uh, peek behind the curtain, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes. Of what went into each issue and just the amount of work God. and late nights and soul searching <laughs> you know, that's still going on 33 years later. I know. But you know that's that's absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much well, for that. Well, thank was, you
2: guys. Really it's good. terrific what you're doing. Thank Thanks. you.
1: And I'd also just like to say thank you very much to uh, to Mark, the uh, the lad from the RSVP, and uh, yeah. for yeah. for getting back in touch with me and answering my questions about pen pals and. Uh, and, you know, all things Human League. So thank you, Mark, much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much,
0: Barry. And, of course, thanks to you for listening. Come and say hello to us at Giddy Pop Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, and also our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll also find the links to the edition of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. (laughs) you <laughs>